2: Ah, welcome to Tell. Okay, let's go back overseas, talk a little bit of some really interesting stuff going on in the UK. That, yes, it's a little different, but there's some universal principles to apply there. We've got Jack Rowlett back with us, Young Voices contributor. He's a writer and commentator coming to us from Nottingham, England, of Robin Hood fame. How are you, sir?
0: I'm good, thank you. It's good to be here. I'm looking so forward to it, discussing Britain.
2: Yeah, I am too. So, we, we you got to mess with the NHS National Health System going over there right now. Everything from ambulance response times, you got nurses' strikes, now you've got a doctor's shortage. This looks like a real big hot mess on the outside, but the real problem with this is the more you look at it, doesn't look like there's a lot of solutions coming anytime soon on some of these issues.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's top of the political agenda here at the moment. And something something that's interesting is in this country, we sort of look down our noses at America. And you guys is having you don't have universal healthcare and you know your healthcare outcomes are determined often by whether you've got a job, how much money you have. And we sort of get this we have this real sense of superiority in Britain that we have this free at the point of use healthcare and everybody has access to it. But actually now increasingly because of the state of the healthcare system, I don't think we can really claim to be a country with universal healthcare anymore. You know, I've, I've been in um, accident and emergency in Nottingham recently, and you've got people on beds in corridors, you've got people sleeping on the floors, you've got, you know, wait times of days now, in some cases, for accident and emergency care. Uh, and we've got, you know, we've got, uh, I think it's about 500 people a week currently dying purely because of the extended wait times for accessing care. And it, in terms of the solutions, I think we've, we've got, there are a couple of problems here. One of which is that it sort of has to get worse before it gets better, and so I think that's the that's the dynamic of us feeling like it we can't really make it better. Like there's no solutions to the problem because actually there's nothing that's going to make it better tomorrow. But there are a number of things that we can do reasonably quickly. So one thing that's being talked about a lot over here is that two that we could um, allow pharmacies to prescribe medication because they're not allowed to do that. So for kind of less serious illnesses you would be able to go to your pharmacy rather than your doctor and get a prescription for some medication from them and that's sort of we've got a big problem with um wait times for doctor appointments as well so that would help out with that as well um, and then other solutions like the fact that the, the nhs model really focuses on acute care And it doesn't focus enough on making sure people are fit and healthy in general. And so preventative care. And so there's a a lot of talk about how we need to we really need to transition to focusing on that sort of care as well, um, because then you avoid this sort of crisis happening in the first place if you have a fitter, healthier population.
2: Yeah, Jack Rowlett joining us. Let's let's have the grown folk talk about this, though, is because too much when you're talking policy-wise, like when we're talking on a show like this or we're writing a piece, some of our friends use universal health care or government health care or single payer, whatever terminology you want to use, almost like it's a magic word, like, oh, we'll just have universal health care and it fixes everything. Mm-hmm. Whatever system you're advocating for, if it's not well-administered, it really doesn't matter because you're still going to have problems with it. And that's where we this thing kind of falls apart is like, Look, it's, it's not a magical incantation. If you're going to have universal health care, there are trade-offs to it. You're going to pay much higher taxes. You're going to have limited options on your health care. You're going to have those trade-offs, but it is free, and everybody gets it. We just don't want to have those full discussions past the buzzword sometimes. Like you just said, you've said it for so long. Well, we have universal health care. You don't. This is the risk of it in inertia. If you don't administer it, it really doesn't matter, does it?
0: Yeah, I mean, if it's free, but terrible then there's not much point in having it at all. Um, and, and ultimately somebody does have to pay. And that's uh, that's the sort of difference is, is ultimately care in America is rationed just as it is here. It's just here it's being rationed at random in a healthcare system that's sort of crumbling all around us whereas in America it's more rationed on the base of your income or your job, right? Um, and, and here there is a real, we, call, we often say in the UK that the NHS is the closest thing we have to a national religion. Like that's the sort of cult-like status it has in the national psyche. And for a long time, any talk of reforming it at all immediately leads to suggestions that you wanna replace it with an American style system and that you wanna privatize it and you're gonna sell off the NHS to private American pharmaceutical and, and medical companies. And so there are all these roadblocks to reform. And and it's a lot of it is driven by the politicians because as soon as you have one party say, okay, well, the NHS is a mess. We need to reform it. Let's do A, B and C. The other parties come along and say, ah, no, you want to privatise the NHS. They're going to destroy it. If you want to save the NHS, you've got to vote for us at the next election. And so nothing ever changes. But I think right now, the scale of it is is just unimaginable. I don't think people really imagine that we'd reach a point in this country where you are ringing 999 for an ambulance and potentially it just doesn't come and you you end up dying in your home or your loved one ends up dying. And so I think now there is there is something of a changing attitude and people are acknowledging that maybe we do need a change to our healthcare system. And that maybe even, I, I think uh, our attachment to universal healthcare is resolute, but that maybe this model of universal healthcare just doesn't work with the aging population we have.
2: Jack Rowlett joining us. See, this is the problem in healthcare in America is the older you get, the more expensive you get. We're talking about the business side of it now. The older you get, the more expensive you get. And we have an insurance heavy model for good, bad or indifferent. So, you know, the young people have to pay into it, although they're not using as many services, broadly speaking, to take care of the older people. That's the problem. You already mentioned it for folks that aren't familiar with the national health system. It was built, it's a post-World War II thing heavily. That's kind of the model. It was designed for that Britain because that was the Britain that existed then, the UK more broadly. That's not the UK that exists now. There is the talk that it didn't keep up to the times as it was supposed to, that focused on acute care, not focused on things like preventative care or long-term care, or even palliative care for the elderly. That's where you start getting into the nuts and bolts medical policy problems here, and that's where a lot of the debate is, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's been flawed since the start, because yeah, you mentioned it's a it's a post-war model of healthcare. It's absolutely right. It was started in the late 1940s. But actually, the expectation of the government that brought it in was you would cut healthcare spending in the medium and long run as a result of bringing in universal healthcare because you'd treat people and so their conditions wouldn't get worse. But actually, what happened was the sheer scale of demand meant that actually healthcare spending has just risen inexorably since then. And we've reached a tipping point now because of those sort of, demographic issues. We've got so many people sort of over the age of 60 that and not enough young people paying taxes in. And we and we've also, you know, we're rolling up the drawbridge and not letting as many immigrants into Britain anymore. So that tax base is shrinking. And so demand on the NHS is just increasing inexorably as that tax base shrinks. And no one has thus far been willing to reckon with the with this with this difficult problem and actually explain to the public, well, okay, you've got the options of either we carry out a massive reform, either we everyone just goes private and poor people no longer have access to healthcare, or people pay a lot more in taxation. And these these um, reforms and ideas aren't always popular here because it's really hard to reform the NHS because of its place in the national psyche. Um, but actually, it's it's so urgent now. It's so urgent. You've got you know toddlers sleeping on floors in accident and emergency departments you've got pensioners waiting four days pensioners with suspected heart attacks you know waiting days for healthcare dying on trolleys you know people in car parks here receiving care in car parks because there's no capacity inside the actual hospitals themselves we just need to do something about it and and reckon with the difficult truth
2: joining us on Heard Tell. When we have these conversations, I always, I always put my hands up and I was like, okay, I'll have the universal healthcare versus whatever debate with anybody you want to. I want to tell everybody two things about me though. I lived overseas. I lived in Germany. I've been a German patient in the hospital. I've had a German ambulance pick me up. I know how that the that kind of model, European model works intimately. I've been there. I'm also a VA health patient, Veterans Affairs patient, which is the government run healthcare system in America. So I know the good, bad, and indifference of all of this. If you live in Germany, you get excellent health care, but what we would call the middle class in America, you're also paying in the 40 percentile of taxes plus a 19 percent tax to pay for all that. If you pitched America on 60 percent taxes, they would tar and feather you and run you out of town. You just mentioned it with the UK. There's no model of reform for the NHS that isn't involving raising taxes, but you've got a population problem at the same time. That's a math problem that has got to be solved if you're going to actually fix the NHS, right? And that brings in immigration, it brings in politics, it brings in the culture war stuff. That's an ugly ball to try to unwind. But the result of that is, is an NHS where it's really hurting people.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one, one thing people don't um, seem to often grasp about Britain is actually our healthcare system. It, it's not a straight European model. It's it is it's free at the point of use and it's, it's, uh, it's universal. So... I think in America you often associate that with with Europe, but actually it's quite different to how the rest of Europe works. We have we don't have any real insurance model at all. Whereas countries like Germany and the Netherlands, for example, they do. Imp- it's a much more heavily regulated insurance model than you have in America. But there is a sort of social insurance system there, and so we, in a sense, we have the worst of all worlds with our healthcare system because it's massive and bureaucratic and run by the states. And you have all the problems that go along with that, but also the quality of care and provision of care is really bad as well. So it's 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 a massive problem. And the dem- the demographics that you've you've just mentioned. I mean, that is the biggest thing now. And and actually, it does it does go broader than the NHS. You mentioned immigration and the cultural stuff and everything. there, there is a real there is a real generational divide here in the UK now. And actually, part of improving public services so the NHS, education, all those things, part of that is making tough choices about um, you know, letting more immigrants in and encouraging people to have more children um, and making policy more pro-family because that's how you improve increase the size of the tax base in the short and medium term. And that's how you fund good public services. And what's most interesting is that the, the very people who rely most on the National Health Service, the sort of over 60s, over 65s, those people are the most unwilling to confront those difficult choices and make Britain a more pro-family country and make Britain a more pro-immigrant country. And it's, it's a cycle of despair.
2: Yeah. Jack, we have the same problem here with what we call the boomer generation. They, they, but we'll get into that some other time. Let's talk about that right there though, because this is where this starts to cross streams into some other areas of policy, that young cohort, let's just say 18 to 25 post-school, post-university, you know, that group, we're seeing some very troubling data post-COVID coming out of the UK. They're having trouble getting jobs, and they're tr- getting having trouble getting housing. You talked about the immigration problem. Look, it's an either-or formula. You either have a high birth rate, or you got to have immigrants if you're going to have an economy. You got to have one or the other. The people you do have can't get work and can't get housing to start their own lives and start their own, you know, housing is equity, housing is wealth. These these are building blocks to your economy that we don't talk about as much as we do like the unemployment rate. This is really troubling stuff for the UK, though, because the building blocks of the future economy for the next generation don't look real good right now.
0: No, they, they look terrible. And if, and if I look at people my age who are looking to get on in life, you know, smart people my age, all of them are looking at leaving Britain because they don't think that there are opportunities here and they don't think the country is serious about improving things. Housing is... A real barrier. Housing, the state of housing in the UK right now, is a disaster on so many levels. You have the level that it's really hard to buy for first-time buyers. The cost of housing relative to average wages is it's it's about nine and a half times higher. The average house price compared to the average annual wage, and in London it's something like twenty times higher. It's it's ridiculous there. And if you go back to the 1970s, it was about three times the average annual wage. So objectively in real terms, the cost of housing has gotten so much more expensive over the past half century or so. And then also that's now spilling over into the rental sector. So for for a long time, you've had a situation where younger people, you know, people in their 20s and 30s have struggled to afford housing, but there was plenty of rented accommodation that they could find and stay in. And that's not, it's not desirable for people to be relying on that forever, but actually at least you had somewhere you could go. Now we're in a situation where there's such a dire shortage of rented accommodation in lots of our cities, it's particularly university cities. We have students coming into cities and there's you know waiting lists for accommodation. There's queues all the way around the block to look around apartments. You have situations where landlords are, are actually renting apartments to the highest bidder, as in the person who can pay the most rent per month rather than having a predetermined set amount. And when you actually get into this accommodation, a lot of it is really run down, it's really bad, it's damp, it's moldy, it's cold. And so the, the the quality of housing is really low. And because there's such a shortage, it means although we have laws around kind of minimum provisions that you have to have for accommodation in the UK, actually your power as a renter is minimal because you can go to your landlord and complain about something and the landlord's response will often be, well, okay, move out then. But you know you can't go anywhere else because there's nowhere else in your price range. You see your friends who are having to move back in with their parents because they can't even rent somewhere. Not that they can't even buy somewhere, they can't even rent somewhere. That's how bad it's gotten. And then that spills over into this intergenerational problem in that you have boomers here who own all the property essentially, and they block new property from being built, particularly in the places we most need it. And so again, that cycle of despair, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse that leads to less children being born, it leads to lower productivity, it leads to uh, lower tax take, and that makes public services worse and it makes Britain a less dynamic and versatile economy.
2: Jack Rowland joining us. The reason I bring that up is because you said Britain is under a generational change. Generational change comes whether you want it to or not, right? There's no stopping it. It's the, that's the tide of time when it comes to people. Generational change can be good or it can be bad. We're looking at these economic problems. We're looking at the NHS problems. We're looking at the political upheaval in Parliament right now in the UK. It doesn't look like this is going to be good generational change if you don't solve some of these problems. You have an urban and rural problem. You know, the highest unemployment for the youth is in the West Midlands, the Birmingham, you know, the old industrial Mm. sectors. It seems like there needs to be some pretty bold action here to cut off this whole generation going in a bad generational change instead of good generational change. But is there any movement to try
0: to actually do anything about it? There's lots of grassroots campaigns, but at the top of politics nothing is changing. I mean, our government has just made it harder, in effect, to build housing by abolishing housing targets um, that were placed on local authorities here, which means there's even less incentive for local councils here to build housing than there was before. And we already weren't building enough. Um, Taxes here have been risen to the height, they're now at the highest level they've been since the second world war and if you look at where the tax burden falls it's on working people and working young people and not on older people and so money is increasingly being given out to older people in the form of benefits from the state, um, and it's money from younger people that's funding that except that um the kind of dyna- the usual dynamics of history have been reversed. If you go back sort of forty years, older people were tended to be in poverty at a much higher rate than the working age population. Now it's reversed. We have more than a third of pensioners here are millionaires, and the percentage of pensioners retirees in poverty is considerably lower than the working age population now. And so things are being constantly rigged in their favour. We have. Um, here, are co- what we're dubbing the cost of living crisis now because the cost of energy is so high. And one of the things that the government's doing to help out with that is they're giving out payments direct to households, um, like a sort of amount taken off the bill of your energy. And yet, more money just goes to pensioners for that handout than anyone else. And it's not means tested at all, whether you're a rich pensioner or a poor pensioner. If you're old, you get a big handout from the state to help you with your energy. If you're a young person on a zero hours contract with a load of college debt who's struggling to pay their soaring rent, you get a lot less. And so the gov- and this, the problem for the government is their voter base is almost entirely the over 65s now. So there's no political impetus for them to make things better for younger working age people.
2: Yeah, Jack roll Th- That's a universal problem. Every country has that problem. The older people are going to have more political power because they got more money, more assets, whatever. That's not new. However, you do have one advantage in England where you have a parliamentary system with outside some very specific judicial review, what parliament says goes, you know, you don't have a written constitution. So whatever parliament does that goes, you could have some pretty sweeping change here. If there was a political appetite for it, how much has the chaos of the last year or so really crippled people's belief in parliament? And I'm not just talking labor versus the Tories and that sort of stuff, just the chaos in general that's where it really starts kind of hurting is because where you would look to parliament's like, okay, it's time to do some sweeping change here and you're changing prime ministers every five minutes and you're just kind of sitting around waiting for the labor to get their turn. And you're probably not real super hyped that the labor's going to do a whole lot. That's a big problem of faith in government. You've got when you really, really need them to be able to steady the ship. Right?
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the system's totally breaking down now. And if you look historically, when one party gets tired, there's tended to be a politician from the other party who is a kind of radical, dynamic leader who people can get excited about and get behind. And actually, if you talk to people in the UK now, no one feels excited about about any of them. You know, they're they're all terrible. They're all, or not or not terrible necessarily, but there's there's just a kind of apathy, right? You either hate politics or you just feel apathetic towards it here. And and people look towards parliament and they look at we've had scandals um, involving expenses we've had scandals involving drugs recently we've had scandals involving sexual harassment in westminster and people just look at them as sort of reflecting the worst of britain rather than the best of britain and so yeah i think people's faith in our politicians to actually get us out of this rut uh, is very low right now
2: yeah i had a labor friend uh quipped to me like if all due respect to keir Starmer, He said, you know, if we had a labor leader worth anything, he'd be king instead of Charles after three, you know, (laughs) conservative prime ministers having to resign in disgrace. Just, you know, it's Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Like nobody seems to be able to even capitalize on the other side, not being able to do anything. That's kind of I'm an outside observer. You tell me you're there. But when you can't take advantage of your political opponents absolutely shooting themselves in the foot. I don't inspire a whole lot of confidence to me. I'm not picking a side. I'm just saying it looks bad. It looks chaotic. And it looks like, even when this, you know, whenever you do have a general election this year, this fall, whenever that eventually happens, if Labor takes over, I don't really see anything really changing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it should be stated that Labor are well ahead in the polls here at the moment. And Keir Starmer, for an opposition leader, is pretty popular. But there's that lack of enthusiasm. People are just kind of trundling along saying, oh, well, wow, it's time for a change now. Conservatives have been really bad. Labour can't be any worse. There's there's no enthusiasm whatsoever. Um, but I think, I think one interesting dynamic as well is that actually the last time Labour came into power, they did so on the back of a really strong economy. And so when they came in, there was lots of money to throw around on public services. There was lots of money to sort of improve things for um, lower earners, lots of money spent on tax credits, child benefit, all these sorts of things when Labour inevitably, I think, win the next general election, whenever that is, and it has to be before January 2025, we're gonna have just come out of a quite long and deep, uh, quite long um, and relatively shallow recession on the back of a decade of really stagnant economic growth. And so there's, there's just not gonna be money to change anything. I think we're looking at a wasted decade for Britain, really now. In the 2010s, it was really cheap to borrow and we chose to cut capital, Uh, spending we chose not to build more housing we chose not to confront climate change we chose not to confront our generational crisis and the pressure that that puts on public services and now we're in the next decade a decade of high inflation of higher interest rates of real downward pressure on growth and we're, we're sort of left with very few options but to sort of try and push forward and make things better in the twenty thirties. It really feels like there's not there's no real change that you could make really soon that would improve things because there's there's no money and there's so many structural problems in the UK now.
2: Is. That sounds bleak. For uh, those of us, uh, look, we got our own best in America. I'm not going to pretend like we don't, especially with what's going on in Congress right now. And we're in a presidential election cycle for 2024 ourselves. So we'll, we will share some some guffaws if you want to send them our way, to be fair. What does and doesn't break through media, especially or, uh, across the pond here? What's a few things for us, maybe the international audience, the American audience, or even the British audience, what should we be watching for beyond the headlines, beyond just PMQs, beyond just the nurses strikes and the rail strikes? What's a couple of things we should be watching for as this year starts to unfold? Is it maybe having the, the election early? Is it maybe a new leader rising up through the ranks? What are you watching for that we should be watching in the headlines underneath all the noise?
0: I think what's really interesting at the moment is is Brexit, which has been out of the news for a couple of years now since we left the European Union but what's really interesting now is people are turning against it here. We sort of have nearly 60 percent of the population saying that it was a mistake to leave the European Union and only around a quarter of the population saying that they think Brexit's going great and we know from sort of trade figures that we're one of the only countries uh, one of the only major economies where our levels of international trade haven't recovered from before the pandemic, and it's been long enough since we came out of COVID lockdowns now that we can sort of say that 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 might have something to do with Brexit. We've got problems at the borders. We've got problems in Northern Ireland. You know, the Northern Irish Protocol still isn't sorted out. And I think for a, for a long time the kind of Brexit wars was like an aspect of the culture wars and it was a real 50-50 split. Now it feels like people are decisively turning away from Brexit or certainly this hard detached view of Brexit and are actually more in favor of a closer relationship with Europe. And I think that will have an interesting effect on politics because the Conservatives have massively tied themselves to the, the strongest, hardest form of Brexit possible. But Labour have also kind of become a party of Brexit as well since the last general election. they of you know they're saying well we're not going to join the EU we just want to make Brexit work we don't want to get that much closer to Europe and so I think that's the interesting dynamic is what effect will that have on British politics as that stops being um, as the kind of the 50-50 divide between Remainers and Leavers here stops being a thing and instead people increasingly are not necessarily wanting to rejoin the EU but are really dissatisfied with how Brexit has turned out
2: Yeah, Jack Carolla joining us. Let's be adults here though. That sentiment and undoing Brexit after the decade of getting to Brexit, that's two very different things. And plus, that's not up to just the UK anymore. We saw what the EU did since Britain and the UK has left. They're not exactly going to gift wrap a basket full of provisions for you to come back either. That could be even worse of a situation. There's a lot of mess there. If they ever decide to try to go back down that hallway again, I wonder how much taste there would be for that if they actually tried to do it.
0: Yeah, I think that that's that's one of the big barriers. Is that I mean, if I were the EU, I wouldn't really want us back at this point. And and I don't I don't think there's much suggestion that we'd go in. Well they want you
2: back, but they're gonna want you on your knees crawling back. And economically everything's gonna be 70-30 their way, which I'm not sure that really fixes anything for the UK. I'm just being real about it. Like if I was them, I'd do it too. Like, sure, we'll have you back, but everything's gonna be in our favor this time.
0: Yeah, and they'd want us to join the euro and and possibly Schengen as well. So it would be we would lose a lot of the advantages we had last time we remembered the EU. But what I think could happen is there could be a move towards sort of a a form of associate membership. So joining, trying to join the single market. So rather than going back into the EU, just having a closer relationship with Europe's institutions. Again, the terms that Europe might demand from us if we tried to do that might be too high a price to pay. But I think there is an increasing sort of understanding in Britain that maybe Brexit, either Brexit was a mistake or we've just messed Brexit up really badly. I think that's increasingly becoming the consensus here.
2: Yeah. Interesting times we live in my friend for our friends across the pond, Jack Rowlett, one of our great young voices contributors. He's a writer and commentary. He's all over the place. Great talking to you before we get you back again, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on and how they can follow you until we talk to you again on her tell my friend.
0: So you can find me on Twitter at Jack underscore nostalgic. And you can find all my articles there all my latest writing, latest appearances on British television and radio as well. And keep up to date with my thoughts on British and global politics.
2: Yep. There's a lot of stuff on housing, which is really important stuff to pay attention to, because I know we all got sick of infrastructure, but that's the infrastructure stuff that matters. Pay attention to it. Jack Rollett, thank you so much for the time, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir.
3: Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important. To so many, hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church and Maine podcasts at the website churchandmaine.org. Or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about feel overwhelmed exhausted or excluded by today's climate change discourse this is the podcast for you find the sweaty penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com Okay, Old favorite, hadn't been here for a while. He'd been busy. He's going to tell us why he's been busy with here in just a second. Our friend's from Consumer Choice Center. He's also got his own podcasting and radio gigs. David Clements is back after too long of an absence, my friend. Good to see you again.
4: Good to see you too. Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, Always a pleasure to have you. Okay, here's an interesting one. We've been talking about housing a lot. Uh, We've been talking about it with our UK friends where it's really getting hairy over there. We've been talking about it here in America where it's not quite to that level, but it's kind of heading that way. Canada has been having all sorts of housing issues, especially places like Toronto, Vancouver, Mm -hmm. the major cities, It's which is really funny because, you know, I'm a nerd. I watch HGTVs. A lot of those HGTV house shows started in Canada and now they got to film them in Raleigh because, you know, people's like, why is this house a million dollars? It's been a problem up there. You've written about it for years that I've known you. You've got policy answers on this, but now you got kind of a personal perspective on this too, don't you? (laughs)
4: I do. I do. So we've spent um, we've spent the the better part of the last three months looking at houses um, in what you would consider the great the GTA or like the outskirts, the outer outskirts of the GTA. Um, and for a long time, uh, this has been a really uncomfortable housing market price wise um, where it is just incredibly difficult um for a variety of reasons to to get into the housing market. So one, prices are through the roof. Um then just as as a, a funny kind of story, um if you are a Jeopardy fan, uh Matea Roach, uh Canadian who who went on a really uh she I think it would be best described as a heater uh, on Jeopardy. Um, Won about five hundred and sixty thousand um, dollars on her run in Jeopardy, and someone asked her, oh, "Well, what are you going to do with the the prize the prize money? Because that should be like life changing um, life changing money." And uh, <laughs> she said, "Well, that'll that'll be a good down payment on a house in Toronto." Um, and the whoever it was who was interviewing. Uh, Her had asked or had said, wait, the down payment, that's not the whole thing. Um, And no, it is not. The average home price at the time was uh, like the median house was something like 1.15 million, 1.2 million. Um, So really high prices. There are uh, laws in place um, for the deposit. Uh, And so as soon as you get over a million dollars, you have to put 20% down. Um, so you have to have 200 grand, um, liquid (laughs) to put down, um, which not many young people have, um, that, that's like decades worth of, of savings for, um, your kind of ordinary millennial who's doing well for themselves, who's kind of cost and budget conscious. Um, so it's, it's very difficult, um, Now, some of those prices have come down recently. We're seeing a bit of a crunch with rising interest rates right now. I think a lot of people who were speculating on real estate who bought, let's say, from 2020 to six months ago uh, are feeling the pinch because the mortgage payments uh, with the rising rates don't match what you can get for rent. Um, So the idea that you could, if you can't sell a home, you can just rent it you're, you're going to eat the loss. And so we're seeing a lot of homes come on the market um, where homes have sat empty for, let's say, three, four months, and that is just too much of a burn rate for a lot of people to stomach. And so houses are starting to go back down. They're dipping below the million-dollar mark. Um, doesn't mean that's very it's that much more affordable for buyers because you're more, it's harder to qualify for a mortgage these days than it was two years ago. Um, with rates being what they are, but we're starting to see some type of adjustment. Um, it's not any type of collapse, I would call it, but we are seeing some sort of price adjustment, um, but not not much of an adjustment in terms of overall affordability, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, David Clement joining us. Here's the thing. Um, we all talk policy stuff. We're pundits. This is what we do. We give ideas mm-hmm. and throw stuff out there. Then when you got to go through it yourself and kind of change your perspective a little bit, Yep. talk about that because when you actually have to do it, here's the disconnect, and here's something I work really hard on because it's easy to just sit here and say stuff into the microphone, into the camera, or write a piece and fire it off and get mm-hmm. it published somewhere. That's one thing. There's a real disconnect between the pundit sphere and the talking heads, and especially the policy sphere, which is its own separate thing where people just sit yep. and do the think tank thing. And I'm not knocking them, that's that's what they do. No, nope. there's a big disconnect between that and the average person that they're supposed to be reaching there's a communication gap there's there i say sometimes an empathy gap of like mm-hmm. hey this stuff is hard to implement and even the best ideas implemented wrongly can be a disaster mm-hmm. talk about that part of it because like you've been talking about housing since i've met you a couple of years ago now but- you went through the process it should refine how you think about an issue like this right
4: yeah, so I think the biggest takeaway for me is so let's say we saw thirty houses. I would say that twenty of them were vacant. Um, so that suggests to you that they were their investment properties. They're not, primarily speaking, they're not someone's primary residence that they're moving out of. Um, so the folks on the left kind of see that as the boogeyman, like that's the reason why housing is so expensive. Um, ultimately, I think I downplayed the extent to which um, people are speculating on real estate. Um, so I was probably wrong in terms of how large that sec- section of the market is. Um, but what's funny is I still think that my policy prescription is is accurate to try and solve it. Um, now, some of that is is correcting for itself with rising rates, um, but the policy prescription I've always said, because people will complain, they'll be like, oh, on the right, they'll, the boogeyman is foreign buyers, right? We don't want foreign buyers, we have to ban foreign buyers. Um, on the left, it's banning, let's say, a second property purchases or third, wherever you draw the line. Um, but realistically, I think the answer, if you want to see if those people are in air quotes bad, and I don't think they're necessarily bad, um, they're responding to incentives. If you want to stick it to them, the best way to stick it to them is to increase the housing supply and create a lot more competition um, in what's on offer in the market. And we're starting to see a lot more uh, effort at the provincial level on that. Uh, the the Premier of Ontario, Ontario's governor for uh, American listeners is wanting to build over a million new homes um, to try and alleviate some of this crunch. I think that's really the best way to um, to stick it to investors or to foreign buyers um, is, is to create competition where you don't see that asset inflation of 15, 20% per year. I mean, a single family home in the greater Toronto area throughout the pandemic outperformed and all of the major um, hedge funds on Wall Street in terms of returns. Um, That is completely unsustainable. uh, And the best way to counter that is to just increase supply so that you have more options for people looking to enter the market. But more importantly, you have more options across the spectrum For people entering the market. So, if I think back to my sister's generation, she's 10 years older than me. They had the opportunity to buy something modest as their first home, live there for five or so years, have a child, kind of outgrow that house and use the equity to then move up the housing ladder. That doesn't exist at all anymore. Um, If you're a millennial and you have kids, it's essentially you're renting in that type of modest home. You're then outgrowing it and you're taking a big leap to that kind of more forever home, the type of house you could live in um, for, for, let's say, 20, 25 years. Um, so that's the uncomfortable situation a lot of folks like myself are dealing with right now is being able to make that leap, which is very tough. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, the best way to counter any of the boogeyman out there is to just increase supply and do so in a meaningful way. Um, which we are starting to see some some yimby yes in my backyard pressure um, with the decision makers in, uh, in in the provinces who are ultimately the the final say on on a lot of the the provinces and the municipalities are the final say on uh, on housing.
2: David Clement joining us. You just touched on it and I don't want to gloss over it because it's the part of the housing thing people don't want to talk about. Equity is wealth and it's Mm -hmm. generational wealth for a lot of folks. You know, Mm -hmm. They inherit a property or they inherit, that's not happening. That chain has been broken like you just talked about. But that's the gap is getting into the first home because once you have the first home, then you have equity to maybe get another home or to renovate the one you're in or whatever the case may be. Getting that gap in and if you have policies like bad mortgages or high risk mortgages, which makes the problem even worse, mm-hmm. that furthers that gap. And it also hurts the greater market. That's the entry point of the, all the problems right here is getting those first time homeowners into a home in an affordable way. That's really the crux of this whole mess. That's where all the policy stuff, that's the rubber meat in the road, isn't it?
4: Yeah, yeah. And I think what you're gonna start to see over the course of 2023, is a lot of the first-time home buyers who bought on a variable-rate mortgage during the pandemic really feel the pinch? Um, and so you're at, like I said, your average home. Let's say, and this is your your median home, um, like your average uh, average house um, in the GTA. Let's say a million dollars. Um, your mortgage rate from, let's say, you got it at the lowest variable would have been one 6 to 2.1%. You're now looking at 4.8 to 5.6%. Um, incomes have not gone up, have not doubled <laughs> in that time period. Um, cost of living has gone up in terms of the inflationary pressure on everything else, groceries, etc. cetera. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot of those buyers reevaluate who bought what we'll now look at, we'll look back at as the top, they bought at the top, at the cheapest they could afford, uh, interest rate wise at the top, and they're going to be either stuck trying to refinance fixed at a much higher rate um, to try and lock something in that's somewhat affordable, or they're just going to feel the feel the pain for a long time. Um, because as a lot of people don't realize that like interest rates now are, nearing the historical average this is like normal interest rates not they they feel uh, exponentially high um, but in the fullness of time they're actually about average and so the people who are banking on interest rates to go back down to um, to low twos high ones i think are dreaming and they're going to really feel it if they don't plan financially for, for that reality.
2: Yeah, David Clement joining us. That's a good point you bring up about the interest rates because that's been making headlines. For folks that aren't following Canada politics and the economy, which is not most of the world and probably about half of actual Canadians, what's kind of the headlines that folks should actually be paying attention to? You just mentioned it, the the interest rates are up, but if you look over them historically, they're not you know outrageously up, it's just comparatively up. Mm-hmm. There's a talk that the recession now may be deeper than they thought in Canada. The Bank of Canada has had some headlines and some press. The Trudeau government has obviously been talking a lot, uh, quite frankly, kind of scattershot about different things, but they're talking about this. What's the outside observer that hasn't been keeping up with Canada? What should they be paying attention to that's been happening in the last few months that's really going to be the top line item going through 2023, do you think?
4: yeah I, 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 not to be too much of a, a doomsdayer, but I think that a recession is imminent. Um, often we'll hear from the federal government about job growth, but they'll'll they'll, they'll very conveniently ignore where that job growth is. And so if you announce that we've overshot our job growth target, that's great, however, if 60, 70, 80% of that job growth is in the public service, that is not positive. Um, not necessarily because we don't need those jobs. Maybe we do need them. Um, but that is not the same as private job growth um, and and wealth generation in, in the private sphere. Because ultimately, those salaries and those jobs are paid by taxpayers. In order to pay those, you either run higher deficits, um, which... Furthers the inflation problem, or you're increasing taxes at a time when people are already stretched um, on their mortgage payments, on their grocery bills, on their gas taxes, you name it. So keep an eye, I would say, uh, be skeptical of of when some of these job figures come out in terms of where the jobs are. That's an important one. Um, I would say that inflation is probably going to linger for longer than. A lot of people um, first argued, uh, I mean, we saw the same thing with the Biden administration saying that this inflation is transitory. It's because of Putin. It's because of supply chains, et cetera. Some of that was of course true at the time, but it is not transitory. This is a monetary phenomenon, which it almost always is. Um, So it's going to linger for a while. Um, and unaffordability is is going to become more of a problem and a, a political talking point moving forward. Um, th- that would be my, my kind of two big takeaways on what's next. Um, and then the real question is, do the provinces have the guts to force cities to build more homes? Because that's the the, the back and forth right now is the province says, we want to do X, but local city councillors are the decision makers. Um, And you have to create incentives or penalties for municipalities who do build or don't want to build. Um, And the Ford government in Ontario has somewhat done that. They've said, you can't, uh, development charges on new builds. There's a cap. You can only charge so much. Um, and because of what what municipalities were doing, and we noticed this looking at the property taxes of older homes versus newer homes, even though they were the same price, um, would be double. And so municipalities are offloading a lot of the infrastructure tax burden uh, onto new builds where your property taxes will be double from the get-go. in order to try and prevent having to raise property taxes on existing residents and that's creating really weird um, mismatch where like so much as crossing one road can make a difference property tax wise although both houses are nine hundred thousand or a million or 1.1 million one will have a 6500 a year municipal tax bill the other will have a 3500 a year municipal tax bill um, So we're gonna see some some pressure from provinces to really force cities to get their act together. Uh, And then what happens from that is the big question.
2: us. Is that, you just kind of touched on it. Is the provinces and the municipalities and the big cities and the governments, is that the primary dynamic to keep an eye on right now? Because it feels like, especially the last, since the end of the COVID restrictions, let's just go back that far, although this is lingering stuff that's always been there to some level. Is that the dynamic to really pay attention to? Because it does seem like that's been elevated quite a bit, at least in the last year or so both politically and culturally.
4: Yeah, that is, the, that is the dynamic to look at because the federal government, in my opinion, is just tinkering at the margins. Um, they don't necessarily have a role to play. It's not technically in their jurisdiction to handle much of housing, but there's a lot that the federal government now does that isn't in their jurisdiction at all, and yet they do do it anyway. Um, like the Trudeau government's Dental care announcement that is not in the federal government's purview at all. Um, same with their child care announcement, completely outside of the realm of what the federal government is supposed to do. And yet they're still doing it. And so, if we've crossed that bridge, I don't see any justification for not adding housing targets into it. And I've long argued that if the Trudeau government was serious about getting municipalities to build, they would just withhold federal infrastructure money um based on growth targets for especially these high demand areas um they haven't really the trudeau government has has taken kind of a lukewarm approach to that um not there's not much teeth to it the conservative leader pierre polyev has been a little more aggressive where he said cities over five hundred thousand would be under some essentially some set of review where they have to meet a certain target or they don't get federal funds, which is a lot for these big cities because they rely on the federal government to help build things like subways and major infrastructure and transit and road expansion and all of that. Um, So either the federal government needs to be much more aggressive or the provincial government is gonna have to pick up whatever slacks left behind and and put that pressure on the cities to, to get this done.
3: Yeah,
2: David Clement, Consumer Choice Center, uh, all kinds of stuff he does writing and broadcasting wise. You mentioned it. We're seven years, almost to the day, seven years into Justin Trudeau now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we got a long track record here. Mm -hmm. He's got, you know, two years or so before he's up again. Where are we at with him? Is there Trudeau fatigue? Is there a bit of a rut that this administration seems to be in a little bit? They're past the COVID stuff now but the economy's not doing super great. People seem a little, you know, they're not up in arms over it, but there is some discontent. Look, at some point, if you've got a sports team, you've heard all the coaches' speeches, you've heard all the jokes, you've heard all the motivational stuff. It kind of feels like we're kind of at that point with Justin Trudeau now. We've seen kind of everything in his repertoire. What does he do here going forward, do you think?
4: So under normal circumstances, I would say – that, yeah, this is this, this would probably be the last go for Trudeau and that the liberal – like if I was in the executive committee for the Liberal Party, I would be starting the process of, okay, when is he going to make an announcement that he's stepping aside? Uh, when are we going to have a, a leadership race to kind of revamp party membership and, and get things moving again? The Liberal partisans, especially the ones on Twitter, hate it when I say this. Uh, But the Liberal Party in Canada very much mirrors what the Republican Party looked like under Trump, where I think they will stay on board until the ship has fully sunk. When that is, I do not know. Um, But just so much of the party is around one person um, and revolves around one person that there seems to be a reluctancy to move on. If, if I was a liberal partisan, I would be one of the people who would be putting pressure on on the party to um, to pass the torch. Um, they have really good voter efficiency. Uh, so because we have a first-past-the-post system with multiple parties, the liberals do a very good job of winning competitive ridings with 31, 32, 35% of the vote. Um, the conservatives do not have as good uh, of voter efic- efficiency as the Liberals, and they're really the only other party who could form government. Um, so you can get 90% of the vote in Fort McMurray, um, but realistically, and this is no criticism to the fine people of Fort McMurray, um, every vote over that 50% mark is um, has no electoral advantage for the Conservatives, which is why the Conservatives have won the popular vote Two elections in a row, um, but not formed government. Um, so, some of that I think is is weighing on on maybe some of the reluctancy to start the retirement party for for Trudeau. Uh, but I think it's it's necessary. If I'm forecasting, if we continue to see increases in crime in major cities, and and some of it is hysteria, but some of it is very real. Um, in the greater Toronto area and Vancouver and we start to see the recession kick in and people lose their jobs or uh, and and things like that or lose their homes as a combination of the two Um, that is that is a ripe time for a conservative to come along who is fiscally minded who is maybe more of a law and order candidate um, to attract the the middle centrist voters in in the suburbs which is what the conservatives need so if i see that on the chessboard you have to be having a conversation within the party if you're a liberal and say okay well how do we counter this because there is the fatigue is only going to get worse the economic turmoil will most likely continue to get worse um and the other factors at play here should um mean that that the it in theory it would be the conservatives election to lose. Um, but they are also notoriously good at losing elections that are theirs to lose. So, um, th- I'm not putting, uh, I I'm, I'm, i i would not take that statement to the bank.
2: Yeah. David Clement, I, that's a universal principle. I think snatching yeah. victory from the, you know, jaws of defeat the and then putting it right back down the gullet of defeat. Um, an interesting sideshow to some of that. One thing that affects all Canadians, of course, is Canada's national healthcare system. Mm-hmm. We we use it in America as a you know, as both a mod and the bailey for healthcare discussions, but you all actually have to live with it, deal with it, and handle it. Yep. Interesting crack in the system here. Doug Ford, the premier, of course, of Ontario, who's an interesting mm-hmm. character in his own right that you love to talk about. I do. Is having a little bit of a foray into privatized health care. Now, Trudeau's kind of really keeping an eye on this and he's made some wide swath statements here. It's a small thing. It's a little thing. I don't know how much it'll amount to anything, but it is an interesting thing.
4: Mm -hmm. We'll see how it pans out um, in terms of what it actually looks like in practice. But the idea is that we just have private service providers uh, or alleviating all of the backlogs that we see for a lot of the minor, somewhat minor surgeries and things like that. Routine scans, MRIs, um, and, and things that kind of fall into that category. And for American listeners, an example of like how severe it can be. Um, so it's anecdotal, but it's my own, this was before COVID these problems in the healthcare system are not, um, are not COVID specific. Um, they were exacerbated by COVID, but they've existed for a long time. I had to have a minor uh, sinus surgery. I think I went in. So from the time in which I first got referred from my doctor to the specialist, it was about six months. I went to the specialist and she said, okay, are you available for surgery? And she gave me a date. It was like March, 2019. And that was eight months from when I saw the specialist. So we're talking well over a year, total time from like the the I have a problem that needs the needs fixing, to actually going under the knife. Um, now for me it was an inconvenience; it wasn't debilitating. Uh, but you have people who, let's say, don't have the luxury of working like I do, um, remotely uh, and with with it with a laptop. Let's say you <laughs> you work. Outside, you you build homes, you do all of those very important jobs, and you tear an MCL. You can't really afford to wait 9, 12 months for surgery. That's a That needs to happen now. And so if we can get closer to those things happening now, it's going to be a huge benefit. And the way the Ford government is saying is there's no out-of-pocket expense. They're just billing the province. It's still single-payer. Uh, these private uh, private clinics, doctors, et cetera, are just billing the province through your OHIP card, which is your provincial health card. Um, so when framed like that, I think it could be very good. How it how it pans out, on, the jury is still out. Um, but if, if we have more options to use our healthcare dollars, essentially, um, to get quicker service, that is a huge plus.
2: David Clement joining us. The thing is, to the American audience, that's like, well, that's how it's supposed to work. Problem is, there's folks, especially certain uh, Canadian politicians, that think this is absolute heresy and have basically called it as much. I know our British friends joke about the National Health Service over there being the official state religion. I don't mm-hmm. think it's quite that bad in Canada, but some of the reaction here, you would think it certainly was. You know, calls for inquisition on why in the world are we putting this crack in the wall it's a culture divide with a U.S. audience to so why that would be so harsh to y'all. Yeah. But just kind of explain why that's such a throwback because it goes back to those other things we're talking about, you know, who's controlling funding providential government, federal government. There's a lot of layers to these sorts of things, isn't there?
4: There are. And I think for the people who are up in arms about this, they view it as the Americanization of healthcare, which it is not. If anything, it's the Euro, it's more of a European model, and Canadian politicians who want healthcare to be one hundred percent public, meaning from the the insurance card that you have to the doctor that you go to to the surgeon to the literal building in which you have that surgery to be owned by the government, um, this is this they're, they're up in arms and and they think this is crazy, but if you Look at your—they conveniently forget that Europe exists, um, and that virtually every country, including the UK, um, has some sort of option to allow for private care to fill um, the void or fill the the gaps where we have long wait and terrible care and all of that. So um, they always look at the U.S. and they'll they'll share like, "Oh, this woman gave birth." And she got the bill and it was like 70 grand. Like, how is it working? Like, do we really want this in Ontario? It's like, well, no, that's not what, that's not what anybody is advocating for. It's more of a shift towards what Europe does, which is a blend of the two. In many systems you have single payer, but the hospital may be privately owned. The clinic may be privately owned. They build a province accordingly, or they build the, build the state accordingly. And you get quicker, um, Quicker care, and for Canadians who really care about the universality, they can't separate you, the fact that you can have universality without the government actually owning the hospital. They think that it all has to be the same, um, and that's just it's just not true. If you get the the uh, horse blinders off and you take a look at how healthcare is run around the world.
2: Yeah, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center.
4: Uh, for those
2: of us that only periodically check in with Canada, either our neighbors or north or the worldwide audience, you know, look, we only got so much bandwidth and we got our own messes. Give us one or two things to be on the lookout for. I know we already talked about things like the economy and the housing and the healthcare stuff. What's one or two things to just kind of bookmark that may cut through on more of the American or the international audience down the road a little bit, but we should bookmark it now like, hey, go ahead and kind of tab this one out because you're going to be hearing from it here down the road a little bit.
4: So I think crime is a big one because with now our sensitivity to crime, is our bar for our sensitivity to crime is a lot lower than in the U.S., and so I don't have the numbers on me, but if I were to quote the numbers, most American listeners would be like, well, that's that's like one of Chicago. That's not a that's not a crisis or a problem. Um, but we are seeing an increase, especially in the greater Toronto area of random crime. Uh, there was one in Toronto where a group of think, five or six teenage girls beat a homeless man to death. Um now that's a headline and it's anecdotal, but then you couple that with like an increase in things like carjackings, very violent, like in-your-face uh, crime, um, and it starts to become something that is then a, a topic of discussion politically. Um, things like the re-release of violent offenders is another common one, where in many instances the the criminal justice reform world. Gets lost. Um, and, I, and I say this because I'm definitely in the criminal justice reform world in terms of victimless crime, um, but I'm certainly not in regards to violent crime. And you'll have instances where people will be granted early release for a variety of reasons, overcrowding or, com- in air quotes, compassion, and then they reoffend in a violent way. Um, as that continues to happen, it becomes campaign fodder for the conservatives. And so I think we'll see that become more of a talking point. Um, Not to the same, not to US levels, but it will become a a, a major conversation.
2: Yeah, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center, been a friend of ours for, since the beginning, I started doing broadcasting and writing, which I appreciate greatly, sir. I didn't throw you your softball about liquor in Canada. We'll talk about that next time. But until we get you back on again, it won't be as long this time, I promise, uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you, what you got going on and follow you until we get you back on tell again.
4: Yeah. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at Clement Liberty. Uh, the organization's website is consumerchoicecenter.org, uh, where we talk about uh, internationally, basically how things impact consumers, everything from sin taxes to free trade to how do we handle, uh, how do we handle companies like Huawei? Um, so lots, uh, lots of good uh, content there on the policy side, uh, both in the United States, Canada, and, and the rest of the world.
2: Yeah, you do good work, sir. We always enjoy the conversation. David Clement,
4: appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
3: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late night comedy style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health security, and everything else we care about feel overwhelmed exhausted or excluded by today's climate change discourse this is the podcast for you find the sweaty penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com i ah, went back to her tells she's a favorite. I know this cuz you people keep asking me when she's coming back. Here she be. Sarah Stook from over in jolly old England, which is mostly rainy and dreary England That's because very true. The east, Yeah, the east coast of England in the winter time. Uh it you may have heard it rains once in a while. How are you doing with the rain? Is all well with you?
1: Well, I'm going to go out and get a chippy Latest, so I'm hoping it doesn't rain when I'm going to get that chippy.
2: Chippy. Fish now, and I know what I know what that is, but you gotta tell everybody else what it Fish
1: is. And
2: chips. All right. I also like where you do the sandwich where you just put the French fries on the white bread and fold it over. That one's always fun too. Um culinary
1: geniuses, we are screw the French, the British do the real food.
2: You know, English food gets a bad rap, but you know what it is is because they compare it to like we think of French food as fancy. If you think of English food as like comfort food or soul food or country cooking, It's all fine. It all matches up fine. That's the trick to it. But look, I've been to England. I like the food. The food was fine. I will take up for your food. Anyway, you do what you always do and you poke fun at us. You did a whole series on presidential runners up. I got a kick out of this because I love history. It gives us a little bit of perspective on the present and where we're going in the future. What lesson do you take from presidential runners up? Because it's really interesting who hasn't become president and who's lost when you go to look at these lists.
1: I mean, sometimes it's an absolute landslide and then sometimes it's extremely close. If you look at, you know, Samuel Tilden versus Rutherford B. Hayes, you know, they had to throw it to the House and they throw it to the courts and people have to decide who aren't, you know, the voters because it's that close. And you get, you know, people who are really experienced who fail or sort of newcomers or someone like um, Brian who ran three times and just never won
2: what ones poked out at you this is a multi-part series like usual over on elections daily we'll link to it like we always do but um what what stuck out with you i know you mentioned that you know the post-civil war runners up there was a lot of democrats they had like a streak of them there for a while there's some really big names in history like you just mentioned that are runners up what really stuck out to you though when you did this whole series
1: well i think this sort of No guarantees of success, as it were, especially when you're running against a popular incumbent. If you look at 1984, I've I've still got quite a few to write, but 1984, um, Mondale versus Reagan. Reagan won 49 states. He was 3,000 out of winning Minnesota. That's That wouldn't happen today because, you know, you've got states that are so partisan, it's untrue. Yeah, Mondale didn't stand a chance. Like, he tried to do the gimmick. He tried to get the um, female candidate, Vice President, no guarantee. Um, but I suppose back then vice presidents weren't really didn't really think about your running mate. Whereas nowadays, when we get to John McCain, Sarah Palin definitely took votes from that camp because everyone thought, well, if he dies, she's president. And yeah, yeah, Except, I'm not I'm right. not
2: sure that's Geraldine Ferraro's fault. Just to be fair to Geraldine Ferraro, but um. No, I take your point. It's interesting, though, because you're from England. So, in the parliamentary system, that sort of thing never happens because it's basically next person up, and with very few exceptions, which, you know, like this past year where you keep going through leaders, um, you pretty much know who the next person's going to be pretty well in advance. It is a unique part of the American system because of the primary system. Because of things like this, you do get that candidate that everybody can just go, oh, they've got no chance whatsoever. And more times than not, no chances of exactly what happens.
1: But, I mean, Donald Trump, nobody thought he would win. Even when I saw first watched his announcement in 2015, I thought, you know, he's probably not going to get far. And then he won. And then he won the presidency. Jimmy Carter had a 2% name recognition. Sometimes the people that you don't expect do the very best.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, You also have, it's interesting since we're on the topic, though, but we've had a couple presidents that didn't get it on their first tries. You know, Nixon had to take a couple swings at it. Uh, George H.W. Bush ran against Reagan famously before he became president. Now, I know Trump's going to run again. That's kind of the outlier for the last 40 or 50 years, though. Usually it's one and done, and folks are done. President Biden, he ran three times. Third time he finally won, although there was a big gap. Do you think the days of multiple shots of it are going to start coming back? Is that a cyclic thing? What do you think?
1: We've seen quite a lot of two-termers in the past few years. You've seen Clinton, you've seen um, Bush uh, Jr. and Obama. So, you know, three in a row is quite impressive. We haven't really had the days of one terms for a while. So perhaps that's what's going to bring it back because, you know, Biden is unpopular as far as I'm aware. That's not say so he won't win next time, but it depends, you know, how he conducts his campaign. And if it's Trump against him or DeSantis, who's clearly the Republican choice after he's made Florida a super majority for the Republicans.
2: I wonder, too, Sarah Stook joining us like she often does. When it comes to failed president, we have these huge primaries now where we had, you know, we had what, 16 people run in 2020. Uh, You know, it's just insane how many people are running, but then they run these long shot campaigns where they're not going to win. They know they're not going to win, but then they end up getting a cabinet position or they end up running for another office later or they up their national profile. How do we figure that part of it in? Because the way campaign finance and fundraising goes now Running for president is kind of its own business model now, and that's different than in the 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries where you cover these runners up where it's like, well, they failed and that was the end of their career. Now it's a business model. That's a whole different thing, too, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, Beto O'Rourke obviously ran for president. He's also lost the governorship of Texas race twice. Oh, well, he lost the Senate race as well, sorry. So, yeah, um, people to tried to... I mean, like you said, there was 16 odds and there was people that was never going to get through, like, sort of no-name, as, as it were. And people, I mean, Pete Buttigieg has been... You know, Joe Biden's been a senator longer than Pete Buttigieg's been alive, to put it in his perspective. Like, somebody that young, you've got to understand, is probably not... And, you know, I, he was only really known for being... Like openly LGBT politician from a a, a mayorship in a small sort of city.
2: Yeah, would the would the mayor of Grimsby be considered for a prime minister? Like, would that work in? We don't really can- have
1: mayors. Uh, mayors, he is like mainly ceremonial. It's not like there's like someone like the mayor of London actually power. Uh, mayor Grimsby. Couldn't tell you who it was. I have no idea who it is. In right.
2: London, London's its own thing because they have, you know, their police forces separate from the rest of the yeah. country They're that they, London's its own beast in and of itself for folks that aren't super familiar with it. It really is kind of a city state inside of the UK from a UK perspective. Do you look at something like the way we do par, you know, primaries and our presidents and the way we do our turnover? Although you, you lapped us this past year, but that's outside the norm. Usually you guys have pretty good runs. Does it seem chaotic the way we do presidents and runners-up in the primary system?
1: You guys take forever to count elections. I had to wait like two or three weeks to make, to finish my prediction list to tick it all off. Because California, I think California 22, took a very long time. It's like, geez, count. How is it taking two and a half weeks? Are you guys, I mean, we do it overnight. You should see Sunderland. Follow Sunderland they're always really quick with counting votes
2: well for one thing the uk is only like 60 million people and we're 330 million so well, just... not
1: every single one of them votes
2: right this is fair but you know there's there's you things involved.
1: you should not take forever like that it's embarrassing But
2: now to, well because and here here it is and the the criticism is because every state does it differently you know florida's done instantly almost now Twenty years ago, Florida was the worst, and they fixed their stuff, got together, and now they're the standard. Now Arizona's a trash fire when it exactly. comes to the stuff. So it's it's one of those things of our system where the states are individual. You know, you have federal elections, but they're administered by the states, and it makes it a mess. All right, that's a fair criticism. Right, that's a fair criticism. Sarah Stuck poking holes into the Democratic Republic greatness of America from the bastion of craziness of the UK where you can't even keep a prime minister longer ahead of lettuce. We have
1: stable monarchy.
2: And I don't know if I call Charles stable, but okay. Um I gotta ask you, because they're over here right now doing the tour, the um Prince and Princess of Wales now, their new designation. They're over here touring America. It's been a couple of years since they did it. Is that a big thing now when a rural comes to America? I know the Harry and Meghan things kind of skewed this a little bit because they live here now full time. Does that still get coverage when they come over here? Is that a big deal in England at all?
1: Yeah, it's got coverage. I've seen it over the news. I mean, I'm a huge fan of um, Kate. I think she's just so lovely, and she's always very stylish, and she's going to make a really fantastic queen. So you know, she's always covered because I think people like her. She's pretty popular. You'll see people saying oh, how lovely she looks and how good a job she's doing. Because she, it's nice to see someone who's liked. So just ignore the politicians. It's nice to have a a properly liked figure you know they've been received well apart from a few chants of usa usa when they were at a basketball game however unfortunately your little nation can be quite did rude. you say
2: basket goal
1: basketball
2: you said basket goal
1: i said basketball
2: you said basket goal
1: i didn't okay but i said basketball <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, it blew my mind though when you when you see them at like a basketball game or something it's like America really does have an obsession over the English royal family. Like it's un, it's 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 unarguable that we're you just susceptible to You guys don't
1: people. have it. You guys have like your dynasties like the Kennedys and the Bushes and whatever. We have like gone thousands of years old family who have ruled over us but you
2: are a monarchist you like that sort of thing we don't like that sort of thing we like it by proxy so the
1: weddings and the funerals and that
2: right Um, but we don't have to own it we're just borrowing it and getting entertained by it we don't have to actually deal with them fund them or be you know subjects very cheap to be fair to be fair too since you're bringing the money up sarah stug joining us like the thing with the with the funeral for the queen and stuff, like it got brought up like, well, this is expensive. Like, no, you don't understand the income. The royal family is probably the biggest tourist attraction in England. Is that fair? To, like they bring in a ton of money to the you country. You
1: guys have an inauguration every four years. We have a big wedding or a funeral once in a blue moon. The coronation will be a big one. Sure. But it's, Charles has said it's not going to be a humongous, expensive one.
2: I mean, seriously, what's the list of people that are alive that remember the last coronation? Like, that's not a real big list, right?
1: Exactly. Me, my nana, and my grandma probably do. My grandfather um, served at the um, Queen's Father's funeral. He, he did pass away a few years ago, though. So, yeah, not not too many. It's like mm. my parents were born way after. So it's it's really bizarre seeing a coronation. It's going to be very big and glitzy though. And I'm looking forward to it because I like pomp and ceremony as a Brit.
2: Well, as it, you know, just on the averages though, you know, Charles is well into his seventies now. So you're probably going to get at least one or two more. Unless yeah, something really happens.
1: Probably will and Kate and then George.
2: Sarah Stook. I always love talking to you. Um, let me ask you a fashion question real quick. We just had our first state dinner of the Biden administration. Emmanuel Macron of the France came over how do you put into context, you know, we call it nerd prom when we do stuff like this because all the journalists and the hot, they get a couple Hollywood stars and they get all pretend like they're all bigger stars than what they really are. And, you know, White House Correspondence Dinner, this kind of stuff.
1: Savage, I love it.
2: When you have political theater like that and it becomes a fashion event, you're a fashion person. Where does the political stuff like that rank when it comes to things like that?
1: You guys can just never, you can never do what we do. I'm sorry, we have the crown jewels, we have the tiaras and the diamonds that are older than your country. And at the same time, Jill Biden isn't really that fashionable. I don't think, like, she can wear nice stuff and she just pairs it with not very nice things, whereas Melania Trump, I know, it was very controversial, but I thought she had a really good taste in fashion. Um, same with uh, Jackie Kennedy. They Obviously, my love for Jackie Kennedy is... Unbound, as it were, and uh, Caroline Kennedy met with uh, William and Kate. I noticed. I would went
2: with unbearable, but unbound works.
1: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I saw Caroline Kennedy met with um, William and Kate. But yeah, um I mean, yeah, you guys. I think it's kind of different because with the royal family, there's a dress code and what they're yeah. not allowed to wear. Like you're not allowed to wear certain coloured nail polish. my little pink nails would not be acceptable today. So it's yeah, it's different and. Yeah, there's more of it. I think there's probably more of a dress code. But, yeah, I think you guys can do some nice events. You can, when they do the White House for Christmas, you can make it quite pretty. But it's a different kind of standard, I'd say, that you know it'd be a lot stricter over here. Yeah, like,
2: we, we don't have the royal protocol where it's yeah. so cut and dry. Of course, some of this will probably change now that the queen died because she was a real stickler for details and stuff. She, Legendarily, she would read through the protocols and stuff. Um, and, and it's different cause every white house is a little different. You know, the Obama wired house had a different style than the Trump white house, which was just chaos. And then the Biden white house is going to be different than whoever comes next. Yeah. Um, I always found the Melania stuff a little interesting because obviously, you know, Trump's such a lightning rod and it's going to be controversial, but it's like, you know, when you think about the role of the first lady, and I don't mean this derogatory at all, but Melania is a trained model. There's probably been very few people who aren't better equipped to be the first lady than Melania was. You know, do stylist things, make it look good, stand there, look pretty, present the country well. Like she's a trained model. This is exactly the skill set well, you I need for the modern personality.
1: A very lovely sense of fashion, and I do believe yeah. if she was a Democrat and not married to Trump, she'd be on the cover of fashion magazines. Like I, believe that, was, uh, 100%, I believe that
2: one hundred percent. I believe
1: very. I mean, she's got you know, she's got the model figure. She's tall and she's very slim, so she, it works for her. But yeah, I think you know, whatever you think of Trump, she is, is was whatever a very elegant ladylike person
2: and i appreciated it yeah yeah i don't i don't think she did anything really untoward or out of bounds or embarrassing anywhere in there sarah stuck all right we know we got part four of the uh runners up coming out soon let folks know what you got going on and what you have cooking over there in the uk uh five hours ahead of us at any given time so until we see you again because you're a frequent contributor here on her tell let folks know what you got going on
1: Um, I'm continuing um, with my my large series on the consorts of England and Britain, a few of whom are my uh, very distant ancestors, which is quite cool. I'll be continuing my presidential runners-up. I'm hopefully going to be writing an article about the year 1979 and its effect on geopolitics. However, I am absolutely stumped on how to do it. So it will maybe appear, but it'll probably be after the new year.
2: I'm actually really excited about that one because you were telling me about it. All right, Sarah Stook, we'll let you get back to doing your busy, busy stuff. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's talk a little tech, but we're going to take a positive spin on it because we can be negative about it. I'll hold my hand up. I'm guilty of that, too. Caden Rosenbaum, one of our good friends from over at Young Voices. He's also a policy analysis. Got one of them lawyer degrees, although he doesn't lawyer too much these days. How are you, sir? Good to see you. I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Andrew? Fantastic. Good to see you. Look, I try to be a little self-aware, okay? I try to, you know, I know my own weaknesses. I work on this. I can be grumpy. I can be curmudgeonly. I can be, you know, grooved in my ways. I'm not big on the new tech. I can yell at the clouds with the best of them. I yell at the kids to get off my yard. But you went out to CES, and I liked how you wrote about it. And we'll talk about the piece you wrote for Libertas. But you took a positive spin on it. It's almost like you purposely went in. It's like, you know what? I'm going to skip the noise and the hype, and I just want to find some good stuff. Was that kind of your thinking here? Well, uh,
5: I'll tell you, my trip to CES that happened by accident, really. Uh, and once I was done, it, it almost seemed like that was all I had to write about because that's uh, the things that I saw, the things that I sought out uh, were just you know positive technology instead of consumer technology, so uh, so to speak. And so whenever I got home and I looked at all my footage and I looked at all my my notes and the business cards I collected, I just I just had a bunch of startups who were just trying to change the world. Instead of, you know, whoever at Samsung or LG or something, with the latest and greatest flat screen TV. And so uh, I sat back and I realized, well, the reason why I wound up at the startup hall is because that was the most interesting thing. Like, I'm not looking to tell people to buy the next $4,000 TV. I'm looking to tell people about what's going to change their lives one day. And so that's how that's how we got to the positive spin. Really an accident, but I'm glad it happened.
2: Yeah, Caden Rosenbaum, for folks that don't know what it is, I used to live in Vegas, so I know what this is because that meant the week I'm not going anywhere near downtown, um, especially the convention <laughs> center, which is where this yeah. is based at. Because this takes over half of the strip for people that don't know. For people that don't know what CES is, though, just give them the nutshell of what this is. Because this is something that is, you know, this has become a media thing now. Every, you know, first of the year when CES comes out, this is four or five weeks of copy for websites. Oh, yeah, the Tech blogs all send people, the major... You know, Apple usually makes big announcements at these things, Samsung, Google, whoever you want to mention. This is big doings, but explain to people who don't know what it is, what CES is and just why it's such a big deal. So the, so CES is it's the it stands for the Consumer Electronics Show,
5: and it's been happening for decades. Uh, I remember being really young. One of the first things that made me interested in tech uh, in general, I didn't really think I'd be a policy analyst. But back then, the thing that interested me in tech was the footage from CES. Right. You get like. Robot dogs or, uh, you know, cars being 3D printed live in a matter of an hour or something. Um, these these kind of demonstrations by huge tech companies of all the things that tech can do is always really fascinated me and maybe want to get in this space in general. But for a lot of companies, this is the, the proving, this is not the proving ground, this is the demo ground. It's where they show people the newest tech. Um, I saw, it, for, for instance, I saw an 8K LED TV. Uh, as I was just passing by. Didn't even realize that was a thing, and it was maybe 70, 75 inches, and it was beautiful. It was awesome. Uh, There's all kinds of VR hand tracking stuff out now. Um, There's new AR, uh, which is augmented reality glasses, and there's like four or five different companies making them. Um, This is where you go to find all that stuff before it hits the shelves. And uh, if you're a startup, this is where you go to find investors and partners and people to be your vendors so you can grow your business. It's it's a trade show, and it's there for all the consumer electronics around the world. And people like me really just go for fun. uh, But people who are actually in the tech industry and and building something, they go to find partners, investors, and really show off what they've got to people like me.
2: Yeah, Yeah, Caden Rosenbaum joining us. You you kind of skipped over it, but I want to back up for a second because there's something really important you said at the start of this. Startups versus kind of the traditional tech companies. This is a sub um, this is a sub-narrative in tech reporting, especially in the Silicon Valley era, the last 15-20 years. It's it's almost like pro wrestling, like there's what's in the ring and then there's what's backstage, right? Yeah. The startups versus the big companies and the shuttling of personnel and how those are the same people over and over again. That's the subheading. That's the backstage stuff to all the performative tech reporting we do. But startups has almost kind of got a bad name in some circles now because there are startups that are just kind of money grabs and whatever. And then sure. there's the little startups where it is hey, I figured out this really cool thing and I'm trying to get it out there, kind of the old school uh, inventor entrepreneurship. That one term seems like we need to break it down a little bit more than just startups because it means different things to different audiences, doesn't it? It really does.
5: Uh, Startup can sometimes mean uh, a crypto bro who just inherited a bunch of money and he goes out and he starts this thing that's totally not useful, totally not in demand. But he's going to go ahead and start it and raise all this money and say like, Google offered me 500 grand, but uh, Meta offered me 400 grand. They're they're trying to swindle me, bro. They're trying to swindle me. And it's really a useless product or something. Uh, But then there's the startups that are startups because they have a good idea. They invented something that's going to help people or it's going to be enticing to people. And they decide to make a business and just go for it, right? Those are the startups that I found. I I thought that they were the most interesting. And one of the big shifts that I wasn't expecting is that a lot of the startups that I talked to didn't have the sort of nail it, scale it, get investors, grow, grow, grow mentality. They had this different mindset where they would take their tech, they would test it in a limited capacity. And, and what they were seeking was investment so they could you know, wait so that they could test and, and get all the kinks out. So they didn't hurt people. So they didn't produce something that was useless, right? They wanted to test first and then they wanted to grow incrementally and, and get the next part of it right. And then grow more, right? And, and that was really a, a theme that I kept finding in most of these startups, even the ones from, uh, from out of the U.S., right? People who wanted to be in the U.S., but knew that they had, like, five or six different safety steps to get through before they could reliably say to people, this isn't going to hurt you, right? I thought that was fantastic. Um, it was way different from what we usually think of startups, which is just throw out a product, and if it hurts people, just sell it and get away from it, you know, sell the liability away. Uh, this was different. I was I was pretty encouraged by a lot of the startups, and uh, one of them that I thought was really, really interesting, and it has some privacy concerns, but I thought it was the most interesting. Still, it it's it's basically an app, right? It goes on your phone, and it creates a keyboard, and it, you use the keyboard just like you would uh, your normal keyboard, and it just watches you type. And it watches you make errors, how you interact with the error correction, and just watches you. And within the matter of a week, it has a profile of you. It knows how you interact with the keyboard. And this is really important for people uh, with MS. Right, Once they have an MS episode, sometimes their arms go numb. Sometimes their whole body goes numb. Sometimes their fingers just stop working a little bit more than they normally would. So this keyboard, within a week, start watching and 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 looking for these things And within a week you might have something that's telling you hey something's wrong uh do you feel okay and if you don't feel okay you might go get checked out because something's happening with your motor functions and the company is called neurocast and i thought it was fantastic the the person shows me uh, he goes into his web browser and he, he shows me something i thought he was trying to show me a website he clicks the little url bar and the keyboard comes up and he shows it to me and i just went uh I'm not looking at anything. I'm just, you're in the URL. And he went, no, this is exactly it. It was sort of like, he was like, no, I know what I've got. Right. Uh, and he shows me this keyboard and it just blew my mind. I walked away from it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Just, this is really important. And so there were startups like that. There were other startups trying to help agriculture. Some were pulling water out of thin air. Uh, some were trying to help with uh, trash recycling and making sure you don't pay for trash days when you don't have any trash or making sure you get more trash services when you have too much trash. Uh, I thought that was really fascinating. That was a startup coming out of Africa. And just walking around what I call the startup stage, it's called Eureka Park. That was the place to be. And so we made a we made a reel and a TikTok out of the footage that I took from Eureka Park. And I just said at the very end, everybody who went to CES, you know, did you miss out? Because everyone else is taking videos of VR and, and roller coasters. And Roland had a really great exhibit with the with, uh, drum machines and a drum set that looks like a normal drum set, but it was an electronic drum set. And that just that matters for, for people like me who can afford to, to go out and, and buy fun consumer electronics. But like to the everyday person, to someone who needs a new device to help their health, or just someone who's trying to make the world better, those things don't matter. The startups were making the things that mattered. And I thought that that was very important to to point out.
2: Yeah. It sounds too much like that uh, Adam Garcia movie, the first 20 million is the hardest to make where they had the virtual keyboard pop up out of the cheap computer. That's what that ad made me think of Caden (laughs) Um, Rosenbrock. We talked about the perceived gap between the startups and the big companies, You'd mentioned the Eureka hall you talk about it in your piece. This was a physical gap. Now, again, this is one of the biggest conventions oh, yeah. in the world now. So obviously not everything's going to fit in one space. This actually had a physical barrier. I imagine culturally just in the room, I imagine that just permeated through everything. When you walk around and you get to talk to these people, was it more people focused than tech focused? Because that's something that came through in your piece. And I wanted to ask you about these startups. The thing about technology And you can talk about wearables or Apple or whatever you want to. Whether they succeed or not, as always, do they connect with people? There's always the gap. Here's the tech. Here's the people. Can we get the people to like the tech? I got to imagine doing it in that environment really brings that to the forefront. Uh,
5: You know, let's just start with the physical gap. CES is way too big for even the convention hall in Vegas, which is, I I think, one of the biggest in the world. So that just gives you an idea of how many companies go there because it's such an important point uh, every year for those companies to make it. But there were two different halls uh, that were apart from the convention hall that I really noticed. There was one that was a convention hall or something like that. It's it's another casino in in Vegas. And that was where most of the media relations kind of stuff happened. You know, how are you going to market Bitcoin or something to consumers? And uh nfts and such and i sat in on one session and realized i was in the wrong hall my wife is in advertising i don't know i don't know a thing about it and so there was the other one though which is another show right away from the uh main convention hall and it was called the venetian uh, casino and that was where eureka park was it was two levels but it was you know at least 20 minutes to get down there so every day my colleague david and i would get on the shuttle and go over to Eureka park. And that was where we set up shop and just kept talking to people. But the, the physical gap is very real. And I think that that was uh, part of what kept people from going to Eureka park. But the other gap, right? Consumers versus, uh, you know, consumer electronics that are for fun versus things that actually focus on people. I think that at the startup level, they're thinking about things differently, right? Larger companies are looking to sell more products and that's great. It's, their job right as a company to sell more products make more money and increase shareholder wealth but the startups were just looking for someone to invest something that would change people's lives i mean they were they were tinker and tinker and tinker and i saw like three or four different prototypes that they would show me their their stages of development over the years and they wouldn't release until they knew that they were onto something and i I thought that that was just a whole different mindset that you don't see at the main stages
3: Now let me see you go off like a bomb.
2: Adam Rosenbaum joining us. We talked about a perception gap. We talked about the physical gap, the technology gap, the human gap. There's a price gap part to this too. You touched in on it piece. One of the reasons I don't pay attention to something like CES, maybe as much as I should, those top line products, 8K and $20,000 or whatever it is. I know five years from now, that's going to be an affordable product and the technology will devolve down. And it'll be a consumer project down the road. So I just kind of turn it off and tune it out. What's some of those things, though, that maybe get tuned out by people like me who's just like, well, I'll just wait until it's cheaper because that's how this always works. (laughs) But we really should be paying attention to because it is pushing the envelope forward. It's not just a new spin on a TV or whatever the case may be. Well, I kind of mentioned
5: this earlier, which is augmented reality. Um, If you don't know what that is, if you've if you've ever been in a new car and it has that pop-up display it's not real it's like a holographic display and it shows you your speed or some you know dash information so you don't have to look down it's right there almost like on the road that you're watching that's called augmented reality and i've been watching augmented reality for some years and it's always been kind of clunky hasn't quite worked but the overall vision is that we wouldn't have you know screens for our computers or uh we wouldn't look down at our phone for turn by turn directions we would see in in real time you know in our real world uh Holographic images, and that comes from the glasses, right? That's where the processor is, and such. And I, I didn't think that it was there. I didn't think it was ready for the market yet until I went to CES, and there were like five or six different companies. There was one company uh, that was making the the processor, and I still don't quite understand it because it was very complex. But had the processor between the screen and the computer that would connect AR, right? And I almost think that they had the screen too. Don't don't quote me on that. But the the founder was from Utah, and he was just a very friendly guy, and. Uh, uh i keep meaning to look back into his things it's very complex but ar is definitely the next uh frontier for technology no longer like we won't have like a buzzing phone in our pockets five years from now or or probably 10 years from now we won't have a buzzing phone in our pockets and we won't have something distracting uh everywhere we go we will we'll have vr uh, an ar that's just readily accessible and it's going to change the way we live our lives the way that we uh walk through cities i mean I don't know if any of us still try to do math without a calculator, but now that we have calculators, our life's a lot more easy. We rely on them. Uh, I don't think that I could go back. I think the same is going to happen with AR. But uh, the other trends that I want to point out is that uh, technology is going to fade into the background, not to say it's going to go away. It's going to become more um, user-directed, right? passive kind of technology, things that aren't taking your attention. They're helping you. Uh, augment your own capabilities. And maybe that's turn-by-turn navigation. Maybe it's doing calculations and still replacing your uh, math abilities. It's going to be something like that, something in the background. And that was one of the main things that I also noticed in the hour or two that I walked around the main stage.
2: Yeah, Caden Rosenbaum. I think you said something really important there though, because something like augmented reality, there's ways that it really fails. I'm thinking like meta and the metaverse and all that, where it looks like Half-Life 2 in a video game from 15 years ago. That stuff's not going to work. But if you make it, and here we go again with what we've already talked about. We keep running in a loop in this, but it's just true. You got to make it where it just integrates into people's lives seamlessly. Smartphones hit so big because they made things easier. So the thing with something like augmented reality is if you got to log into six things in four apps, that's not easier. That's not going to work. If it streamlines three or four things into one device or you don't have to reach for something and it's practical, that's when it starts hitting.
5: That's that's exactly what I'm thinking, you know, um, and especially when it comes to the the goofy tech. And I, I thought that there were a lot of tech companies there that were, you know, they were making toys uh, essentially, right? They were they were making uh, robot dogs with fur, and they were kind of lifelike. Those were fun, important tech, I, I guess. I mean, I don't know what frontier that progresses. I'm sure it does something, but some of those things I just thought, you know. Very cool you have holographic uh, fish in a fish tank, but what's the point? How is this going to fit into anything but a luxury lifestyle? And then then there is right the passive technology that's in the background to help you augment yourself and become something more than just a, a person you can't do math if you're uh, anything like me. I thought that that was way more important. Uh, if anything that the big companies did it was to find some things that would augment or, or go in the background to just help. Right. Instead of change things or make you buy something silly.
2: Yeah. Caden Rosenbaum, here's here's another example of what we're talking about. We've had wearable technology for a while now. It's a big thing. Some of Yeah. Apple Watch that worked. Um, Fitbits, very popular. Google Glass didn't work. Got cringy, was creepy. People didn't like it. You had several of the things you noticed in your piece and you have a list of some of your best of here that you found there was multiple kinds of wearables. I don't know if this is the second wave or the third wave we're getting into wearables, but it does seem like maybe these companies are learning from their mistakes a little bit. They're getting out of the uncanny Valley area of these wearables, focusing on practicality. And now they're kind of starting to figure out where those lines are of, Hey, if this really helps somebody, it's going to go well. And they got some real practical stuff that they're looking into getting into here.
5: Yeah. Um, uh- Well, just for starters i mean health things are really important i think a lot of people are uh especially if they're able to buy wearables they're probably thinking about life longevity and how to be healthier because they're probably in their their 30s maybe 40s and probably after i think and in your 20s you're probably struggling to, to buy some of these things yourself unless you're getting it for christmas from your parents or something um I think health is a big trend that i that I locked in on. Um, I went up to this this company that has a camera and it takes your biometric it can it can do a selfie of you and take your biometrics and figure out if you're at risk for certain diseases so I, it watched the pulse in my face, my pupils dilating and it came back and was like, hey, you're in great shape, your skin looks like you're twenty four but you should probably cut out some cholesterol stuff. You should probably start exercising because you're a little bit higher risk. And that sent me on my own little journey, right, to look for some wearables that would help me with exercise or, or diet. And there was this one that I mentioned in my piece that is a, a wearable uh, physical trainer, right? It watches your vitals and it can run really high level diagnostics, but it also shows. Uh, you know, the motion you make when you lift a weight and if you're lifting it improperly because you don't want to hurt yourself at the same time. Uh, I thought that, that was a really important tech. Um, and, and there was much more there that I didn't get to explore. But I think health and wearables is right now where companies are locking on. Because as soon as Apple released their Apple Watch with EKG or ECG technology, something that could you know track your heart rate and you can see if you're having a palpitation or something, that was huge. You know, it's got fall detection. If you fall off a ladder, it knows what that's like, and it calls an ambulance if you don't pick up. Uh, that's really important for people because it helps them live longer or, or be healthier. And so I think that that's probably the thing that wearables is going to uh, in- enhance over the next couple of years. But when we get augmented reality glasses that are affordable and actually useful, I think that's going to be a major market. It's going to change the way we work, the way we live our lives, the way we go about cities like, like New York, which I'm in right now.
2: Yeah, Caden Rosenbaum. Let's talk on a lighter note, though. You were tweeting about this. Let's talk about some old school tech. If you just paint in stencil, no smoking on a wall with a whole bunch of tech <laughs> bros and geeks around, that's old school tech. How effective is it? See, I think uh, I think that there was a, a language issue
5: happening there. Um Instead of no smoking, I think some people were reading it as smoking and that was the place to smoke. But every time you left the Venetian hall, there was the no smoking sign and like a hundred people just smoking cigarettes. It was just a big cloud of secondhand smoke. And I had to take a picture of it. I couldn't ignore it. I thought it was the funniest thing. And so I said, uh, be ungovernable. And that was all I could say about it, you know, but if, if we had augmented reality glasses that could, you know, interpret and spit back out in a different language what something is saying, like in writing. Uh, we already have this. We There's a software or a technology company out there with classes that will listen to someone talk and provide captions, either in, in the same language or in a different language. It'll translate it and give you captions in real time, which is huge for communication. And so this whole no smoking, smoking thing might be a thing of the past in the next couple of years. We work hard enough.
2: Yeah, Katie Rosenbaum. All right. You actually walk through the halls. One of the things about being somewhere in, in person is you don't get the headlines again. You know, the the press releases, people just grab the press release, spin them back out. That's how this stuff gets reported. Again, this is a pretty select slice of people because these are the insiders or the tech geeks or the people that are really into this. What were they talking about though? That's not making the headlines. What were they discussing? What was kind of the buzz, not of the products, but just in general, when you get a group of people together, it's always interesting to kind of take a slice out of what they're actually talking about. What was, what were they talking about in the halls and as you were hanging out and walking around? In the halls,
5: I I didn't hear the reporters, right? The reporters were writing, and that's great. And I thought it was encouraging to see them retweeting me and sending me out to bigger audiences because I wasn't sharing, you know, the next uh, smart ink cars for paint or something. But the people in the halls, they're making deals they were getting investors. They were running through the ringer, giving their pitch, trying their hardest, uh, or just finding vendors and figuring out how they could work together. I thought that was the most interesting because I don't work in the business world. I have a finance degree. I always thought I would work in the business world, but I never did end up there. Uh, I just write and, and think about things for a living. But I got to see business people, you know, and, and they make deals just like Shark Tank, but they're they're like in a little corner of a hallway and it's just three of them and they're running through things and they're You know uh, they're being asked tough questions i thought that was very interesting uh just to observe and see happen because it wasn't um you know if you go to a speech it wasn't like the filler stuff you hear at a speech it's like we're going to be great in the future and we're going to be producing renewables by 2030 it was like here's our bottom line here's our roi this is how we can help you and in three years this is what we believe we can deliver what do you think and then they would get feedback back um that was fascinating couldn't tell you what they were talking about it was all numbers but. That was the hallways of CES. And the other part of the hallways of CES was people who were just totally exhausted, like myself, by day three, uh, taking little mini naps on the, on the sofas because it, it's it's an exhausting event. It's it's all the time grueling, but uh, that's the hallways. That's the things you don't see for sure.
2: Yeah. Some entrepreneur needs to come up with portable cots and go sell them to CES. You'll make a fortune. <laughs> exactly. There exactly. is no tech that will ever replace good old-fashioned hustle is what you're saying here, basically. Oh, yeah. That's that's. I wouldn't say that's wrong, um,
5: but I think that it can take a lot of the burden off of the hustle for sure.
2: Yeah. Caden Rosenbaum. This is fascinating stuff. Again, sometimes I get cynical about the tech stuff. You know, we've been we're a year into, you know, Elon Musk being the main character on social media, this kind of stuff. We can get burned out on it. So I appreciate you bringing a positive spin on it. It's like, hey, yeah, we are better off in the Middle Ages because we have indoor plumbing and Google we are better off. So it's good to not be cynical about these things. Appreciate the piece. We're going to link to it. read the whole piece. He has his list of things that he found really interesting. Let him know. I'm sure he'd like some feedback on it. Kate, until we get you back on the program again, though, let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on, how they can follow you until we see you again on her. my friend. Her-
5: So if you're ever looking for me, you can go to Libertas.com. It's actually pronounced Libertas, but the phonetic spelling is L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S. It's Libertas. Uh, You can find me there, or you can find me on Twitter, at Caden Rosenbaum, C-A-D-E-N, R-O-S-E-N, B-A-U-M. And right now, what I'm focusing on is the, the gig economy and regulatory sandboxes. I'm looking at drone regulation. And right now, the Utah legislature is in session. And one of my big focuses, because Libertas is, is based in Lehigh, Utah, is the Utah legislature and making sure that bills are up to par with what needs to happen at the states. And so if you want to look for me or follow me along, go to Twitter or uh, find me on Libertas.org.
2: Yeah. And Utah's legislature has been really interesting the last few years. They've been crossing some lines on traditional politics. We'll have you back and talk about that sometime soon. They Some things you wouldn't think out of a state like Utah, and they've been kind of dare I say, progressive and innovative on certain things. We'll talk about you that in the future. Caden, appreciated the talk, buddy. You enjoy New York city. We'll talk soon.
5: Thanks for having me on. Talk to you. then.
2: Thank you.
3: Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life. Even if we don't express a faith, At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about feel overwhelmed exhausted or excluded by today's climate change discourse this is the podcast for you find the sweaty penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, exciting to talk about this topic with this individual in particular. He writes over at Arc Digital, which I wrote at a couple times way back in the way back. Alan L. Rod, how are you, sir? Thank you for joining us on the program.
6: I'm doing great. I'm
2: really happy to be here. I'm excited to have you here. He'll talk about the Pulaski Institute he's involved with in just a little bit. He teaches at ASUBB. Uh That's after Cabot, but if you go to Searcy, you went too far. For those of you <laughs> in the Jacksonville area, some of my old stomping grounds from where I got Sent to Little Rock, but that's another story for another day. You're writing an Arc Digital. Look, this is a <laughs> this is a very specific breaking news news cycle instance on a very old topic that we have constantly been discussing since the beginning of America. And if you go in philosophy and history, I'm, humans have always been debating this. When you strip away all the names and you strip away the politician names and the pundit names and all the buzzwords and all the social media stuff and the political stuff. What we're really talking about in this piece in Arc Digital, and we're going to link to the whole thing, we're talking about freedom and we're talking about a pluralistic society. Now, that word gets thrown around a lot, but it really is something that America has a little bit of a unique claim on. We're a big pluralistic society, or at least we should be. Let's start with that term and that word, because if we don't have a good handle on that, the rest of this is going to get in the weeds real, real fast.
6: Uh, um, so, you know, the idea of a, of a pluralistic society is one where, um, multiple groups of people, um, and that can be broken down in all kinds of categories, religions, ethnicities, uh, cultures are able to live and thrive. And, um, uh, most importantly, right. Enjoy uh, the expression of those identities in a way that's not, you know, uh, unduly, uh, restricted. Right. And that's, that's really what it, what it comes down to. Right. And that's, um, in, in many ways, the story of American society has been the fight for that very thing, right? Uh, and, and so uh, while we tend to look, I think today, on um, US history and society as, as sort of uh, a place where, okay, we've achieved that now, right? So we tell the story about how we got there. Uh, it's still really important to be vigilant to, to all the ways in which uh, those principles can be can be undermined.
2: Yeah. And the way they get undermined and the what you're getting to the thrust of here is the relationship between the government and freedom, whether that's freedom of speech, whether that's mm-hmm. freedom of a business to do whatever a business is going to do. It gets complicated because government does have a regulatory function. But then we get politics involved and we get cultures involved. And then those two lines start crossing. You're using the example down in Florida. But when those lines all start crossing, that's when you get to the heart of not only pluralism, But also what freedom means, because there's a push pull element to freedom that you're just never going to get out of that equation of more freedom here means a little less freedom over here. And that's the tug of war that we're always going to deal with here. Right.
6: Yeah. You know, I think there's with this kind of thing, there's always the, the tension of there's the there's the legal question, right, of freedom and and whether or not, you know, speech is being. Uh, legally restricted whether or not expressions being legally restricted whether or not government is regulating people's freedoms and then there's another kind of question about you know the culture of free expression right are we are we fostering a, a kind of culture that is open that is willing to uh, uh, embrace difference and the real test of that is always 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 difference that we don't like right because everyone thinks that the thing that they would like to censor that they would like to see less of um, is falls into that special category of things that deserve right Um, censorship or uh, restraint or restriction in some way. Right. Everyone thinks that their special thing is the exception and fighting against that impulse is, is a really, really hard thing.
2: Yeah. Alan Elrod joining us. This is where you get into because lots of people want to do things like censorship like cutting down somebody's right to speak or somebody's right to do whatever, but they'll slap that freedom word on the front end of it. So how do we start parsing that out? When we get news like the debates in academia, the debates in education, the debates in free speech and media of media companies doing this, that, or the other, where do we start discerning this out? Because lots of people can put freedom on the front end of that statement, not really meaning it. That's kind of where we get into the buzzword part of this, isn't it?
6: Yeah, absolutely right. People love to call you know everything a free speech issue, and in the sort of literal legal constitutional sense, that's that's not the case, right? Obviously, uh, the government restraining speech or putting putting punishments or, on on speech as a consequence of of speech actions, it, that's when it becomes a First Amendment uh, issue, right? But that's why I think it's so important to to keep that distinction, and you know I don't want to go too far. In the in the weeds, like you said, but the reason why Karl Popper and his idea of the open society is so important to all this is, Popper's fundamental argument is that, um, not that truth is relative, but that, and I think this is something we can see when we look through history. the The most virtuous way to run a society is something that's always in contention, and the best way to make sure that we're actually living in a society that is pursuing. Uh, good ends that is letting people try to live their best lives is to is to have one where uh, people really can both kind of in their personal lives and the way they live it and in the sense of public debate assert different ideas about what it looks like to live a good life to live a to live a free life and and to 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 shape society how it ought to be and that actually is like I think again so important to say. Because we do see this sometimes from the left as well. It's really hard to be committed to that. It is really, really hard to be committed to that idea of a genuinely open society where we accept that people are going to have different ideas about what's good. Uh, but that placing limits on how people live their lives or how people express themselves is really the worst possible way to actually you know, mitigate the bad.
2: Yeah, Alan Elrod joining us anytime we reference somebody like a popper though we need to understand what he was writing about what he mm-hmm. was talking about you opened your piece in Arc digital again we're going to link to it read the right. whole thing this is an extensive piece there's a lot of links in this piece you need to click yeah. through as well make up your own mind about it popper's writing about um the quotes you're pulling from him are actually in the 70s towards the end of his life he's writing about the events of the 20th century obviously the nazis in europe soviet union these kind mm-hmm. of oppressions fascism all the way back in the 30s he even touched on in some places that's what he was framing his discussion about now we'll <laughs> twitter being twitter and facebook being facebook everybody we don't like is obviously a nazi or communist or whatever whatever right, right. <laughs> so the terminology gets carried over but they're not the same things however what are the core principles that carry over even though though we use those as kind of the worst case scenarios we're not in those worst case scenarios yet, God willing, but mm-hmm. some of those principles should carry over. What are the principles under the buzzwords we need to glean from that?
6: I, you know, I think the core difference really gets at it, you know the the simpler terms that are underneath that idea of pluralism, and that's difference. Uh, and human beings uh, struggle with difference, right? That's at the root of of racial prejudice through history, but it's also at the root of of things like the tribalism we experience today, right? We're really bad when we encounter difference uh, at, at managing our response to it. And the core here is this idea that um, if the big thing that I know about the world that I'm convinced is true uh, is really actually, not is really true, but is really worthwhile, that that there is actually a chance in an open society where we can um, debate and be contentious, but also do it in a way where we know um, that we're not going to throw anyone in jail, but also that we're not going to um, try to overly silence anyone else. That that there is always that that kind of sense that we can come to um, sometimes compromises, sometimes, sometimes not, sometimes ideal uh, conclusions, but also that the risk is worth it, right? Because, you know, Democratic societies have been the kinds of places that have sometimes produced right fascism and authoritarianism, right? Weimar, Germany was this um, in many ways very permissive place that 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 you know was what preceded Nazi Germany. So I think that's also the scary part is is we have to accept the risks of embracing difference, of embracing the idea that living together as people means a whole lot of different ideas about what the life of an individual or the life of a whole society should look like and that's really hard to do
2: Alan Elrod joining us. Let's let's do some history real quick because I think it's a really important touchstone because it's something that gets brought up. You just mm-hmm. mentioned the Weimar Republic. Of course, that is pre-Nazi Germany, what was going on right. between the First World War and Second World War. It was a disaster in, on an economic level, but that was also stuff that came out of World War I. Mm-hmm. We have all these pundits, and you just mentioned it, and you talk about it in your piece. They point to the cultural part of the Weimar Republic. They talk about, you know, a very open society, a very decadent society, a very tolerant mm. society. It was very well known for lavishness for lack of a better term, <laughs> without getting too far into it. That's a fair way to put it right there. There was a lot going on. However, what happens is the people that want to discuss uh, the things going on now say, oh, well, that society was so tolerant that gave way to Nazi Germany. That's not a straight line. Those two things are not exactly the same thing. But when we're going to talk about pluralism and freedom, the people that want to use the term freedom as a battering ram against things they don't like, they simplify something like that and then try to use it as an example going forward. That's not really the case, though, is it?
6: No, ex- no absolutely not. And I think this is where we can kind of tether a few ideas. We can tether the sort of debate around the sexual permissiveness of Weimar and the conversations about today with drag shows and things to actually the, the more academic uh, curriculum conversations around CRT. And we can link them uh, really in this way, because these things are messy and contentious and hard. And because there are always going to be groups that react um, negatively, right. To this kind of people living their lives in these very freely expressed ways there is an appeal to groups that come along and, and assert uh, a, a particular truth, a rigid truth. Right. And then, and the Nazis did that, right. That's what they did. They said, you know, these are, these are the mores. Um, obviously there was the racial politics, but they had also, you know, very kind of anti-gay into sort of prurient politics. Uh, and today, um, you know, I find it really chilling for anyone to compare, you know, drag shows today to Weimar Germany, because to me it says uh, something kind of dark about the impulses that person may have towards uh, the LGBT community today. But when we flip that over to conversations, even about, um, you know, CRT and history and curriculum, talking about history and race uh, and power is, is supposed to be, I think, an explorative, interpretive process. You know, I was an undergrad. I was trained as a historian. Uh, and um, history is difficult, right? And I think what you see at the core of a lot of these sort of curriculum changes that say that they're liberating students from these sort of what they think is overly racialized ideas about uh, American history or about uh, race and power dynamics, what they're really doing is saying, we really want to tidy up history and make it this sort of clean, more linear, positive thing. And it just isn't. Um, it, it And that, again, is not an assertion of relativism. It's an assertion that dynamism and messiness and difference are at the core of pretty much any human thing, history, culture, politics, but that the instinct to to cover those things up, to... Uh, conform them to more sort of rigid structures and ideas um, is a persistent one over time. But it's one that we have to be really, really careful about resisting.
2: Yeah. Alan Elrod joining us. This is one of those things where, look, it's like you're on the interstate. You're trying not to ram the guy in front of you and you don't want the person behind you to ram into the back end of you when you try to slow down, right? There's a balance Mm -hmm. here. Proper context on these things to me is, I always try to lean as much as I can towards freedom and pluralism. And the reason why is because the path against those things always winds up in the same place. We know this through human nature that you just spoke of. We know this historically throughout history. There's so many examples of this. Yes, there is such a thing as, you know, we got to have some rules and got to have some law and order. But the people who want to crack down on very specific things and usually over cultural things, that's always a red flag to me. And it doesn't mean they're always wrong. It's just one of those things you got to discern. But when I look at it historically, and if I step back from the culture stuff and the buzzword stuff, if you're purposely going after specific things over and over and again, that's always a red flag to me because pluralism is one of those, all of the above, as much as we can possibly do kind of things.
6: Absolutely. And I think this is where, you know, um, even, you know, it's not just people right on the right. Like when you see sort of Twitter blobs about someone, whether it's a stray joke they made on the internet or, or some viral video or or some report of, of something that was said or done. Um, I think we always, always, always have to meet anytime there's like a call to disappoint a person, to fire them or to uh, have them, you know, investigated. I think we have to start with a position of skepticism about those things. Now, it may very well be, uh that 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 you know actions need to be taken sometimes. But in general, I think, you know, it's really hard to resist that, right? Because as soon as whatever it is that's happened plays into our concerns, plays into our sort of uh preferred sort of uh, issues or hobby horses, right? That that rage boils up, that anger boils up, we feel very self-righteous and 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 suddenly um a situation that might be very similar but involves slightly different players or issues where we would say, you know you can't you can't discipline this person for what they've said oh uh, we're saying well but this but this is the special situation where you should be able to
2: Elrod joining us. How often does the special situation burn us? Let's take a example that you use in your piece. It's been in the headlines. We've been covering on the show before the Disney situation in Florida. Mm-hmm. Look, Disney's one of those things. It's like Walmart back a decade or two ago. It's like Amazon. Now they're the biggest thing on the block. So they get to be the easy target. Right. And everybody knows what it is. So it's a universal messaging thing is if you're, if you're fighting with Disney, everybody knows what Disney is. You don't have to explain it. Right. Disney and Florida have a long, complicated history. Ron DeSantis, the governor, has been making hay, picking fights with Disney on regulatory issues, on cultural issues, on a couple other things. How do we parse this out beyond the politics of it? Because obviously it works for him. like It hits the right nerves for his base and the audience he's aiming oh, yeah. at. There's also a little bit of hypocrisy here because, no, they're not going to get rid of the, you know, they are not going to take over Disney for the state. It would bankrupt the state if they did that. That's not going to happen either. So there's some performative to this. But again, once we strip it all down, we're right back to the old adage. How much should government influence a major company that they're already in bed with? Let's just call it what it is mm -hmm. and try to affect what their product is and how the government interacts with them. This is a very, very old, you know, you could go back as far as you want in human history and you have a government entity and a big business. This is an old story. This is just the new run on it. Right.
6: Yeah. And I mean, it's always a question of, of obviously government has a role in regulating. And if some governor of Florida had just come along and said, I think we need to reevaluate, you know, the the Reedy Creek special improvement district. That by itself is not alarming. What's alarming is the clear sense that this is about punishing Disney were speaking out against right at the time, right, the, the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill, uh, which Disney did largely because its own LGBTQ employees were upset. Uh, and then also you have, like, all this other sort of stuff of, of sort of conservative activists being angry about, right, the depiction of same-sex couples in Lightyear, right? Like, never mind the fact that, you know, 70-plus years of Disney content has presented other very much more sort of, you know, rigid ideas about relationships. So, you know, it, it, it always comes down to sort of in this kind of situation the motivations right and the context right regulating this business this business is not by itself nefarious the idea that the state of Florida or that Ron DeSantis would try to wage this both regulatory and kind of PR battle against Disney as punishment right for speaking out against a, a bill that is obviously not the kind of conduct <laughs> if that were being done right in a in a system. Ah, uh, just in another country, we would say, uh, "Well, that's not very good, right? That's not very, that's not very democratic, uh, or very, uh, uh, you know, f- free and fair, and 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 market friendly, right?" But it's being done in an American state, and that means that people tend to run to their sort of party tribal uh, lines. Um, but it's still bad. <laughs>
3: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.
2: Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Tell show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late night comedy style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. They got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Alan Elrod joining us. I think we need to change how we talk about this. You address this on your piece. Let's take somebody. Look, Ron DeSantis won by a huge number in his reelection. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Very popular. So what he's doing is very popular with his state. For somebody who agrees with somebody like Ron DeSantis on 80, 90% of policy, but they think the Disney thing just went too far. That kind of folks. If you just come out and go, well, Ron DeSantis is clearly a dictator now. Well, no, that's (laughs) too far too. that's hyperbole. No, he's not a dictator. He was duly elected and his base that elected him really likes this. I think it's cynical and political theater. And I think it's a little hypocritical too, when you dig into the specifics of how they were going to do it, we're not going to do it kind of stuff, but no, he's not a dictator. Both of those extremes, those, those buzzwords aren't helping the conversation whatsoever. So if you got somebody that likes a politician, I'm just picking on Ron DeSantis here for the example. Somebody who likes most of what he does, but he does one thing that's too far here. Let's just pick the Disney thing. How do we talk about that in a non-buzzword, 2023, overhyped social media way where you have to go, well, I have to like everything he wants, or I'm a Libby Lib, or he's a dictator? Mm. You see what I'm saying? We got to find a better way to discuss differences like that. Because if you're talking to somebody that's reasonable, you can persuade them or discuss it. But if you start with the extremes, you got no chance. How's a better way to discuss a topic like that?
6: Well, and you know, I can happily throw out the example right of my uh, my new governor in Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who just uh, signed a bunch of executive orders on Tuesday right after her inauguration. Right, also sort of limiting CRT in K twelve. She also did this thing where she banned the use of the word Latinx uh, in government uh, uh, documents, and I, I that may even be a good point of comparison because you know Latinx is not especially popular among. Many Latinos, uh, although some use it, but the question there is really similar to this question with Ron DeSantis of is is the step of banning it appropriate, right? Uh, and I think that's where you have to have the conversation. You know, liberal democracy lives and thrives, uh, and it also you know uh, is at risk and potentially perishes at the sort of general commitment to these principles. So I think it's important to say, look. Everything is in a question of, you know, full free democracy or dictatorship. Um, there's a lot of uh, nuance in between where we can say, well, what I'm worried about is, uh, you know, a culture, a political culture, or even um, specifically a, a state administration that is willing to go after companies or after groups in this way. To me, what is that? Set up for future administrations who want to go after other groups, right? That you're even less comfortable with, right? And and you know that can sound preposterous, right? But at the same time, right? Criminalizing drag shows is is not um, is not a moderate or 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 mild policy. Uh, And I do think, you know, with Ron DeSantis, I I get worried with it because, you know, he's not a dictator. He's not a, he's not, you know, he is the governor of a state. But at the same time, you know, American democracy made up of 50 states. And if you see the degradation of the quality of democracy or the quality of sort of civic life in a given state, especially a state as big as 40, that does uh, actually have a kind of, you know, deleterious effect on the quality of democratic life in the country. And I do also get worried when you have people like, you know, I cite Dreyer in the piece living over in Hungary who love Victor Orban and who look at DeSantis and say, actually, no, I agree this guy is kind of like Orban who has sort of taken over his country's higher education system and passed lots of anti-LGBTQ laws and been very kind of assertive about this sort of very rigid, mythical hagiographic idea of hungarian history it's just that i think those comparisons are great and good well that that actually should disturb us a little bit so i think there's a way we can be fair we don't want to be hyperbolic uh but at the same time i'm 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 not inclined to cut him excessive slack you know especially the way his spokesperson christina Bashal, has conducted herself going out and saying you know if you oppose the uh the don't say gay bill not only may you be a groomer, but uh, you're probably indifferent, right, to essentially the, the sexual violation of children. That 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 is not the kind of thing that a public mouthpiece uh, should be saying in in a United States uh, jurisdiction.
2: Alan I'll joined it, but she's saying it because it works. Oh, yeah. And she's hired specifically to say it. And mm-hmm. here's the thing. I don't like it. I don't care for her, her style, and what she does whatsoever. We're going to see more and more of that um, because we have a template. Now we have a template of the last few years that there's a segment of the electorate that really, really likes that stuff. So how do we if you don't like that stuff, even if you agree with what let's just hypothetical this a little bit. If you agree with let me use the same number again, 80, 90 percent of what they're doing and you don't like the messaging they're doing. How do we discuss that? Because like you just said, part of the part of where the pluralistic society starts breaking down is it's not just tolerating somebody that's different than you. Mm-hmm. It's also being able to communicate and get along with the people that are different than you. And Absolutely. I think that's where that becomes an issue of how are you going to govern all the people when you're, you know, balkanizing them just to get elected in the first place. I understand it's going to be successful. I understand it hits all the right buttons. I understand it works. I'm not dumb. And maybe it's a little pie in the sky, but there is better ways of doing it than that. Yeah.
6: Yeah. And I mean, I think to me, I I won't try to answer this in any way as, you know, advice for political strategists or people who want to win campaigns. But if we're talking on a more interpersonal level, you know, I do think there is a question of which, like, are you, can you be brave enough? I know brave may sound like an overplayed worker, but can can you kind of be brave enough to model this stuff yourself, right? Can you extend it first? Can you be someone who's willing to embrace, not just shutting down people who disagree with you? And that includes some things that might be very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of people struggle with this where they conflate sort of, well, um, you know, not fighting to shut down speech that I think is offensive means I'm saying it's okay. It doesn't. Right uh, you can you can uh, vigorously oppose and object to it. But can you kind of model that yourself? I think some of it takes that. Can we try every day to be people who who uh, kind of try to resist that instinct that happens so often, like online to pile on people or to to call for people's jobs or those things? I mean, those are little things, but they add up. Can we be people who participate in trying to, to foster that much more sort of open, dynamic, vigorous way of engaging in, in public and civic life.
2: Yeah, he's Alan Elrod, uh, President CEO of the Pulaski Institute. He teaches at ASU BB. This piece is in ARC Digital, a wonderful publication that's got a lot of different stuff in it. I've wrote there back in the day a couple of times. Make sure you check that out as well. Alan, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up. You We're going to link to the pieces and the organization, but let folks know what you're about and how they can follow you until they get you back on her tail again.
6: Phenomenal. Um, You can find me on Twitter. I'm at A S L rod. So A S E L R O D. Uh, I'd love it. If people would come visit us at the Pulaski institution, uh, which is just www.pulaskiinstitution.org. We have a number of things there. You can find uh, our podcast, which is called uh, the periphery from the Pulaski institution. It's available on Spotify, on uh, Google uh, Music, Amazon Music, Stitcher, other places like that. Um, You can read our blogs, Uh, one of which we're really proud of is the 50 Takes on Democracy series, because part of what we're focused at at Pulaski is subnational democracy. Uh, And we've been inviting uh, academics and journalists and other experts to write about sort of the the state of democracy in their state. I'm proud of the pieces we have so far. We've got some pieces coming um, in the next few months on uh, Indiana, California, the District of Columbia. uh, And we've already got pieces up on places like Tennessee, Alabama, and Kansas, and more. Um, And obviously you can read me at ARC Digital where I am a columnist. And I think ARC is a a place that really embodies a lot of stuff we're talking about, about
2: pluralism and, and openness to ideas. Speaking of pluralism and openness to ideas, is Pulaski County still a blue county? Because that blew yeah. my mind when I first moved there back in two thousand.
6: It is. It's. I mean, it is, and it's one of the few ones that that probably still is. Little Rock, North Little Rock, Jacksonville are still all uh, pretty democratic. Uh, the second district, which is includes mostly Pulaski, is still a little bit pinkish. I mean, we're represented by um, Republicans uh, at, at every congressional district. Which is, you know, I'm not saying there's something inherently wrong with that, but uh, it is not a, it's not an especially politically diverse state. That's true.
2: It's a very interesting political state, and I got there right at the tail end of the Clinton presidency, so it was Mm -hmm. really for to show my age here. The other Huckabee was governor at the time. Oh Uh, yeah, yeah. I
6: don't know if people realize. Yeah, we're we're now on to our second generation of uh, of Huckabee uh, in the governor's mansion. So. Yeah, We'll see how it goes.
2: I was there for the tail end of his administration and the pardon fiasco, but we'll talk about that some other day. Uh, Alan Elrod really enjoyed this. This is an important topic. It's not the buzzwordy stuff. It's not the trending stuff. This is the core stuff that we got to get a handle on to make things better. Appreciate your time today. We'll have you back soon.
6: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you, sir. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, hadn't seen him in a bit, but he's a good friend of ours. Roy, your boy Roy on the Twitter. We just call him Roy because that would be weird in real life. Roy, how are you, my friend? Good to see you again. Pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a good new year so far. Yeah, and it's <laughs> no shortage of lines going on, but I want to talk to you about a little energy policy because something really big happened in the last few days that got very little coverage because we got the Harry book and the madness in Congress and whatever else everybody else is talking about these days. And I think there was a football game this week. Something really important happened though. The news came out of Europe about their energy use, where it comes to Russia and where it comes to their efforts to kind of wean themselves off Russian energy, really big, important stuff. And it just didn't get the headlines, but it really ought to have.
7: Right. Yeah. So um, this week, the uh, the United States beca- um, overtook Russia as the chief uh, energy supplier to Europe, um, which is huge, um, especially considering that the Russians provided, I think, a quarter of um, Europe's energy for natural gas, oil and um, other distillates. Yeah.
2: And the important change here is the movement of LNG, liquefied natural gas. This has been the game changer. Now, this is an expensive way to move it. But it's also a very fast and efficient way to move it once you have that expensive infrastructure in place. That's really been the game changer here because they were their goals themselves were like 10, 15 percent this year. It looks like they're going to hit 25 percent this year on some estimates. That's game changing when it comes to the geopolitical, but also the economic. They got a little bit of a break because the European winter looks like it's going to be a little more mild than they thought it was. So that's helping. The prices are coming down a little bit. But that infrastructure, it's expensive, but once it's in place, boy, they've been able to turn this around really, really fast.
7: No, yeah, you're right. The, uh, and the Norwegians have really stepped up in um, supplying their own supplies of uh, natural gas, uh, oil, and other distillates through three main pipelines that go towards Germany. Um, and the LNG plants, uh, they're extremely expensive, extremely um, costly to maintain, but once you actually establish them, Um, these ships that, um, leave the Gulf of Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, um, can deliver massive amounts of energy to Europe. And the Germans sure need it because, uh, they've shut down all their nuclear plants and they're trying to fire up old coal fired plants to, uh, stay warm. But thank God the winter isn't too bad over in Europe.
2: Yeah, it looks like it. Roy joining us. That brings us to where I want to talk about us. We have some really good LNG facilities, Elba Island and Savannah, Freeport down in Texas, Louisiana, We should have at least a half dozen more than what we have if we would have had a little vision back about 10, 15 years ago. Right. Right. This is an argument for infrastructure and energy, not just chasing gas prices. I know you wrote about crude oil prices. We'll talk about that in a second. That's the stuff that gets the headlines. Right. Things like oil refineries, things like LNG plants the cutting edge of this kind of technology that we've known about for a while, but we really haven't been building the way we should imagine what we could have been doing with Europe. If we had a little bit of vision and had more East coast or Gulf coast LNG plants, when this came up, we really could have been doing some business here.
7: Right? No, the, the last, uh, the newest refinery in the United States was built in 1976. Um, Obviously I was not alive in 1976, but um, the sort of refinery crunch, the refinery capacity crunch, has really hit home in the last two years. Um, the United States has lost about 1.1 million barrels per day capacity in a little less than two years, uh, mostly due to the pandemic, but also due to the sort of um, government interference in the oil and gas sector. And a lot of these refineries are just are just ordinary businesses. They need to you know, balance their books, look at the future, and see where they can make some money. Uh, but unfortunately, there is a um, a really uh, the East Coast's largest refinery in Philadelphia uh, shut down due to a um, an accident that happened. Um, and the company just looked at their books and said it would be prohibitively more expensive to um, repair the plant and continue production than just to shut it down.
2: Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. This brings us to what you were writing about, about crude oil prices. Just let's keep this on kind of a basic level. Explain it to me so even I can understand it, though. Crude oil prices affects way more than just gasoline. And those are two different things. And people sometimes mix them up. This involves a lot of things. You wrote about it. Heating oil. Ke- look, we had kerosene heaters when I was younger because uh, yep. we still had a split. We had a split use stove because they were still from back in the day. We didn't burn coal anymore, but it still had the coal burner on it. So we used kerosene heaters instead. A lot of, a lot of folks, especially in the Northeast, still use kerosene. Jet fuel. Um, other byproducts. Crude oil. Affects a whole lot more stuff. So when we're not refining as much as we could, and we haven't kept up with the refineries as much as we could, this puts us susceptible to these giant swings in the crude oil prices. It affects a lot of things in the economy besides just that number that hits the headlines.
7: No, you're absolutely right. And um, you know, the kerosene, um, kerosene's use as a source of heat, not um, nationally, fourteen percent of Americans use kerosene as a heating source for their home that's mostly concentrated in the northeast where obviously it's very, very cold. But you're right. Um, When you have a a barrel of crude oil and it goes into the refinery, it can be made into all these different distillates, Um, kerosene being a very highly refined, very pure um, distillate. And most folks that use kerosene live in older homes or live in mobile homes where the Um, The heating oil tank or the the kerosene tank is located outside of the home, so where it's exposed to the elements. So kerosene actually has a much lower freezing point than diesel or heating oil, which is why it's so economical for these folks to heat their homes with in really cold places.
2: Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. You talked about this when you wrote about it in National Review, too. The cost of this isn't just the price of kerosene, which is huge now. I remember when kerosene was cheaper than gasoline way back in the day when we were using it. You know, you're talking six dollars a gallon for kerosene right now. The problem is that's not the only price we're paying places like Massachusetts. You deal with it. Maine, which you're very familiar with, places where it gets really cold in the wintertime. Now, things like the omnibus bill and things like this, we're having to put massive outlays and heating assistance. This is costing millions and millions of dollars on top of the actual cost of the fuel. We're making this more expensive than it really needs to be. And I hate to loop back to where we started, but things don't happen in a the vacuum. They happen in a sequence. This is why that infrastructure is a big deal. This is why how we negotiate with other countries, how we do it. It all runs into we end up paying more, not only at the pump for this stuff, but in subsidies to help people afford it.
7: Right. And um, this it was it's sort of a a perfect storm of of incidents that led to this. The the, you'll remember the moratorium that was placed on um, drilling permits uh, back in the summer. Now, normally, most people would think that would have nothing to do with heating oil prices or kerosene prices in the winter. But during that time of the summer is when wholesalers and distributors purchase in bulk heating oil, kerosene to prepare for the winter when prices are low, when you and I aren't heating our homes in the middle of the summer. Right. So because they put out that moratorium and the prices shot up, a lot of these wholesalers and retailers waited to purchase to purchase their supplies, hoping that the price would go down. And because we're coming out of this pandemic and everybody's hopping on planes now, the airline industry which also is one of the main um, consumers of kerosene. Um, Some refineries use the acronym uh, SKF for superior kerosene fuel. Um, Jet fuel and kerosene are by and large the same fuel. So now you have a massive demand for the airline industry to fuel their planes, but you also have this um, shortage where wholesalers and retailers are now having to buy kerosene even more now that they've waited and the price still hasn't gone down. So you have these shortages.
2: Roy matthews joining us let's talk about the other side of this because that's that's the political and the economic side of it there's also the political and environmental side of this here's something i don't think it's talked about enough on this i'm i'm sensitive to people that have environmental concerns about refining oil it's a messy look i used to work and live in the huntington ashland area the catlitzburg refinery i drove out all the time it is a dirty business. There's not a super clean way to do it. However, like you just said, the last refineries we built was in the 70s. Not only the green technology, but the refining technology has gone down the road 40, 50 years. We have new technology to do a better cleaner in those bridges before we get to that bright new future that always seems over the horizon, right? That's part of this that doesn't get talked about is we're not going to build a 1970s refinery. We're going to build a 2020 refinery or 2030 refinery probably With by the time you do the lead time and stuff. Should we be discussing it that way Is like, look, technology isn't stagnant, not just in the green stuff. The way we use fossil fuels is also improving incrementally. Those two things need to bridge each other. And I don't think we talk about it correctly in that way.
7: No, you're absolutely right. And we have gotten to the point where a single barrel, 42 gallons of oil, of unrefined oil can go into a refinery and 44 gallons of different distillates can be produced. So we actually can produce more from less um so you're absolutely right the 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 notion that refining is still stuck in this like sort of 1970s very environmentally um impactful state is is just misguided um and we've seen from these price hikes that it's mostly the folks the low-income folks the folks that are living in in mobile homes, in older homes, folks that are on um, Social Security fixed income that are really feeling the the pinch from these prices.
2: Yeah, Roy Matthews, let's talk about some other low-income folks. I went and looked it up. I kind of knew it, but I want to make sure. Natural gas production, okay, which – is a lot cleaner than coal mining and a lot cleaner than oil refinery, although there is environmental impacts and it needs to be regulated, and we all understand that. Look, I'm sensitive to this stuff. I'm from West Virginia. I've seen firsthand what strip mining does. I've seen what clear-cut logging does. There's a big patch of where I hunted growing up right beside where I grew up where they stripped it for development and then found out they couldn't drill down far enough to put in septic. So it's set barren for 20 years, and it ticks me off every time I go to my mom and dad's house. I hate that part of it. However, we can reasonably use these resources. Look at this list of natural gas production. I'm talking about low-income Biggest natural gas field in America is Marcellus Shade. That's Pennsylvania, West Virginia, the heart of Appalachian. You don't think they could use some economic developments? The next three, Louisiana and Texas. Fayetteville Shell's number five, that's Arkansas. I lived in Arkansas. I can tell you firsthand those folks could use some economic development, right? New Mexico and Colorado, the San Juan Basin, the Pinedale gas field in Wyoming, Wattenberg gas field in Colorado rounds out the top 10. Texas has four of these in the top 10. These are areas of the country that have a lot of land. There's a lot of room out there. We should be able to find a balance between the environmental concerns, which are valid, and the economics concerns. And these are all areas of the country that could probably use the economic development at the same time when you look at the list and where it's actually at.
7: No, you're absolutely right. And the folks, uh, the counter argument to this, folks will point to these um, smaller facilities that also refine different distillates um, that have been built in the last 10, 15 years. Well, those facilities are in the 10,000 barrels per day range. Most of them go up to mainly 20,000 barrels per day. For these refineries that we need, we need refineries that are capable of producing hundreds of thousands of barrels a day. Um, and when we have this shrink, this, this refinery shrinkage, um, that also impacts um, folks' ability to purchase the kerosene. Most wholesalers and retailers, I don't know if you've ever um purchased um heating oil or kerosene for your home but most these wholesalers and retailers in order to make money in order to keep their businesses afloat they require a minimum uh amount of minimum sale so to speak um and most of the minimum sale is around 100 gallons and if kerosene is at six dollars a gallon that's the low end um you're paying six hundred dollars for 100 gallons of kerosene and you know i talked to some older folks in in maine when i was still living there. for folks that are living on a fixed income in their 70s, most of them are living on 1300 bucks a month. That's more than half of your monthly income. And you still gotta put gas in your car, go see your grandkids, get groceries, get all these all these supplies. So it, it really starts to hurt the folks that um, really can't afford um, most of these wild price spikes.
2: Yeah, Roy Matthews. The other part of that, too, is they're guessing on the price fluctuations. So you can make or break your half a year's budget based on whether you guess right or guess wrong. on when you buy a bulk order like that, that's a lot of people's reality, especially people on a fixed income. That's an excellent point. Roy Matthews. Let's let's bring this back around because um, we all talk about energy independence in America. I understand. Yes, that's a thing, but it's also a little bit of a misnomer because. It's not that we're going to shut ourselves off from the world energy independence and we're just going to be this bubble. I think sometimes people think that that's not what it is, It's that we're going to create more than what we send out. And we're going to have enough to send out to be economically viable to the rest of the world, like we just saw in Europe. Do we need to change our terminology and update it just a little bit here? Because, look, it's a geopolitical issue. It's a world peace and war issue with Russia now is like we should be able to export gas to de- to decrease the conflict in Europe because that's a lot of how Russia gets its money, stuff like that. The old terminology doesn't seem like it perfectly fits that anymore. Should we change how we talk about this a little bit?
7: I, I think we should. Most people, when they hear energy independence, they think of us pulling up the drawbridge, drawbridge, so to speak, and sort of hoarding all our energy for ourselves. That's not really the case, and that's not actually one of the main benefits of energy independence. Energy independence just means... We export more energy than we import. We we sell more than we actually need, so we can fulfill our heating and energy needs here at home. But like you said, we can also sell and become a um, and become a supplier to these countries that have had to purchase energy from from the Chinese, from the Russians. Um, and we all know, as we all know, the R- Russian oil and gas and Chinese oil and gas comes with strings attached. They are going to want something in return. Whereas American oil and gas companies and American companies in general are just trying to make money. And so energy independence, I think, needs to be framed more in terms of that geopolitical issue, but also as a way to sort of provide for the folks at home, too. When we when most folks hear about import-exports, they just think we're... Um, We're sort of supplying the needs of the rest of the world. If we focus more on how we can provide for folks at home while also bringing in that extra income from energy sales abroad, I think that would go over much better with folks that are really struggling right now just to heat their homes.
2: Yeah, Roy Matthews. One last thing. Let's bring this to a practical level. I always like to bring it down to like how we talk on our social media and talk to each other. The price of a crude oil barrel doesn't really make sense to people. Right. Chasing the gas price on the billboard at the gas station. That's a lagging indicator that has a lot of complex things to go into it other than, you know, like a Memorial Day or something like that. That confuses people what's an actual number or headline or indicator people should be watching when it comes to energy, when it comes to things like natural gas and crude oil prices, something practical they can watch because this stuff fluctuates so much. What's one thing they should pay attention to in the headlines to go, okay, that's something I need to key on and pay attention to. Do you think? Uh,
7: So I would watch the travel. I would watch, focus on travel demand. I would also focus on the transportation sector because, we all need these fuels. These fuels transport our products. There's the transportation sector is going to take a lot of the diesel fuel, a lot of the gas, um, and just like I mentioned, the airline industry is going to take a lot of kerosene. Focus on the trends in the transportation sector. Also focus on um, refinery capacity. It doesn't matter if we can rip all this oil and gas out of the ground if we can't produce it. If or excuse me, if we can't refine it efficiently, um, you know crude oil isn't going to be put into your car it needs to be refined and the sort of bottleneck that we've created where we've lost refinery capacity but oil and gas production has shot up has created this sort of choke point in our supply chain um, so I would really focus on that if you really want to know what's coming down um, the pipe so to speak no pun intended um, but yeah you'll just like you mentioned you know the sort of gas prices are sort of the end result of all these different competing sectors uh and factors
2: yeah roy matthews good stuff as always buddy let folks know where they can keep up with you you got a lot of things moving and shaking right in the moment you're kind of between things but let folks know how they can keep up with you till we get you back on her tell again
7: my friend right so um like you said you can uh follow me on twitter that's uh, at your boy ro- underscore roy uh, 98 um, put most of my articles up there and that's really the easiest place you can uh you can find me and all my uh all my south carolina gamecock football talk too
2: yeah <laughs> uh, we'll tolerate that because you're a friend uh <laughs> roy matthews always good talking my friend enjoy the new place you just moved into and we'll talk again real soon my friend all right thank you appreciate it thanks All the music on Her Tell is provided under a Creative Content License from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Her Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from DC and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.
3: Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its smirk everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi. I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church in Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcast at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app.